Vampire Podcast this week. It's just two weeks until Christmas, folks, and we've got more guests under the tree and more directors than Torah, Torah, Torah. Well, actually, we have the same amount of directors as Torah, 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 as we are joined by the spirited director, Sean Anders, the bardo director, Alejandro G. Inritu, and some guy called James Cameron. James Cameron, director of Evator, The Way of Waiter. Very, very exciting indeed. All that and more on the movie podcast. That has noticed that journalists who have been previously critical of Elon Musk appear to be suspended from Twitter. So, for the avoidance of doubt, let me clarify earlier comments I made about Iron Man 2, in which I suggested that it was the worst film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That, of course, was an error. I can now see that it is an actual fact the best film in the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe. Hashtag Elon rocks. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Hello, Pod. I'm Integrity's Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week we're recording it uh, remotely. Uh, you may hear from my voice that was a very, very wise decision. Can't shake this cold, guys. Can't shake this cold. I'm joined by my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Geek Queen Helen O'Hara is here. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm I'm super glad I'm not in a small confined room with you. I'll be honest, Chris. With with the best will in the world and all good thoughts for your recovery, I don't want to go near you. I'll be, be completely honest. I'm still in my pajamas. Oh, I no. was up very very late last night, uh, writing the next cover feature of Empire Magazine. Uh, <gasps> I, I I stink. I stink. The feature oh. hopefully doesn't stink, but I stink. Uh, well, I, I didn't things... mean that to be pointed. I'll be honest. I was just, you know, okay. Batman, no. Jingle Bells, Batman swell, Smells. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Batman, uh, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, James Dyer laid an egg. Hello, James Dyer. Hello. I'd like an egg, actually. That'd be nice. I had oh toast for breakfast. I feel... Oh, you I, sound I, as sexy as I do. Thank you very much. Do you have uh, a cold? Uh, I have I have the beginnings one. I had a sore throat yesterday, and I feel a bit rough this morning. Oh, no. I think, unfortunately, having been in proximity with you recently, Chris, I have I have been infected with the smell virus. <laughs> <laughs> the lurgy, the lurgy. Yeah, that's what Captain Trips. Oh that's no, it. that's how it all begins. I like I to think of it. myself as a Stu Redmond type. Oh boy, I'll, I'll, I'll yes. outlive you all. Yes, yes. Uh, M O O N spells podcast and <laughs> spells nerb. <laughs> yeah, spells great big fucking nerb. Uh, well, welcome all. Two weeks until Christmas. Well, actually, no, not even no. nine days until nine Christmas. Days. Terrifying. I am so behind on present buying for a little drinking game. Um, where are you guys? Uh, what What have you got me? Oh, you know what? It hasn't arrived yet. Isn't that Isn't that disappointing and strange? Um, one That's day not it'll, fair. It'll I see loads of stuff here. I keep thinking, I, oh, that would be nice to buy it for Helen, or that would be nice to buy it for James. And if I were a millionaire, mm. you know, then I would totally and utterly buy you guys that stuff. But I don't, and I just then I just mm. wave it goodbye. But at least the thought is there. And the, the, thought thought is there. the thought is there. I have had the same thought. I have bought you presents in the past, but I haven't, I'll be honest. Helen's very, very good at presents, actually. You're a very presenty person. Oh, I, is... don't, I don't feel strong. The, the force is not with me this year. Like, I'll give you an example, right? I decided you felt to... Your presence? I decided to buy my parents heated body warmer things, you know, so like you put them on under your coat, but they literally heat up. They have, they have like USB chargey things and you, and they literally keep you warm. And my parents go for long walks on windy beaches. And I thought that'd be really nice. They took a month to arrive. They were completely the wrong sizes. And the company was like, yeah, sure. Have a refund, but don't bother sending them back. It's too much trouble. And they can't get me another one by Christmas. And I now have no clue what to get my parents for Christmas. So it's, you know. Anyway, they won't listen to this because, you know, they don't. So it's fine. But <laughs> if you have any ideas for my parents for Christmas, like do get in touch. Now is the time. 
I could provide them with a subscription to the Pilot TV podcast. Would that uh, <laughs> would that be nice for them? I mean, again, nice the gift the, they the, keeps on giving. The, it, it would be lovely, but they just don't listen to podcasts. I was wow. going to say, if the extended O'Hara family, and I think there are, are millions of you, uh, listen to both our like podcasts. rabbits. Mm. Yeah. Hey, just because we're know. Catholics. You know, <laughs> how many sisters and brothers do you have? I'm one of four. That's not too bad. Yeah, one exactly. Four, is that your official Borg designation? And there's only like <laughs> 10 in my, ge- in my entire generation. Yes, I'm one of four. <laughs> A tertiary adjunct to Unimatrix 01. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Should we get some questions? Sure. We're, up, we're, we're a bit up against the time-wise today, and so let's, uh, let's plough through the small talk, um, killing several onlookers as we do so, and uh, let's take a couple of questions. Here's one from Chris Hewitt, who asks, what movie-related Christmas presents are... No, actually, this isn't from Chris Hewitt. This is from an actual person. Sorry. <laughs> so Daniel the W, Daniel Watkins on Twitter, asked, what were our favourite movie-related childhood Christmas presents, toys, annuals, tie-in novelizations, or video of a favourite film? And then I'm pretty sure someone else said, what movie-related stuff would you like for Christmas this year? Ooh. Oh, okay. Uh, favourite as a kid, I mean, it depends if we count the Care Bears movie and the My Little Pony movie as movies, because if so, it would be Care Bears and My Little Pony stuff. We do, and I believe the recent Sight and Sound poll affirmed that by putting them both in the <laughs> Yes, top I, I think they were number two and three just behind Jean Dielman, weren't they? So, um, yes. So yeah, obviously, obviously those when I was little. I wanted Star Wars Lego, but it was always a bit expensive, so I had to go over to my, or Star Wars toys rather, so I had to go over to my friend's house and play with those there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and, and this year, this year, I don't It grows know. hot. It grows <laughs> hot. Um, <laughs> I'll be honest, I still want to find, and if anybody out there has a link, there used to be such a thing as, as a cute Captain America shield for my tree, like a cute one, like a nice one. There's those horrible resin Disney ones that weigh a ton and just drag your branch down and spoil the look of the whole thing. Nobody wants to drag your branch down. Nobody wants to drag your branch down. Steady. Look, no. I, I've gone on that ramp before, but Disney decorations, terrible. Really Very bad. heavy. Uh, Very so this heavy. year I've got, I've got a couple on my tree this year. I've gone for a couple of new ones. Okay. I've gone for the uh, Grogu one that we got when we were at the, well, that I bought, I should say, whenever we were at Star Wars uh, Celebration. Not Celebration. What do you call it? The thing we were at, Galactic Star Cruiser. Yes. And I got I got uh, a Millennium Falcon one, which is really cool, but really heavy. And I got a Grogu one, which actually makes noises and lights up. Ooh. But of course, you have, to, you have to press it to do so, which, you know, I don't want to go near the tree. But that's, that's got to be on the very top branch because mm. it's so freaking heavy. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It. Come yeah. on, come on, Disney. And a, a sort of Clark Griswold esque feat of slapstick. You know, you put the you put the uh, the bobble on the on the tree, and it you know causes the tree to be so heavy that it goes through the floor mm. uh, and makes a lovely tree for your downstairs neighbors. So, so that's the spirit of Christmas, isn't it? Giving and sharing. It is giving and sharing. It's what Grogu would have wanted. Uh, because let's face it, Grogu's dead by now, isn't he? Oh, oh, you're a monster. No, a no, long he's, time ago he's, in galaxy he's far thick, away. but he's not dead you don't think he's dead no he's like he's getting buff he's buff he's trained with luke so i think he's you know he's 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 swole now but i don't think he's dead i guess it depends on what a long time ago means yeah i mean last week's podcast feels like a long time ago to me <laughs> but i mean i'm just saying but you know the introduction like- of this week's feels like a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know is he dead they live a long time they live a long time, yeah. If a long time ago was like 100 years ago, he yeah. could still be very much alive. It, since he does a lot of cardio, I think he'll live a very long time. We're 900 years 
you reach, mm. Lucas could, you will not. Yes. Right? Yeah. So Grogu, you know, he's unlikely to hit 900, is what I'm saying. <gasps> why? 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 I think he has made decent lifestyle choices. I don't know. I think he'll probably get killed, won't he? <gasps> He's this is, this is taking a dark it turn. It has taken a dark turn. I don't think this is true. A Kroger is for life, not for Christmas. Um, <laughs> uh, Jimbo, what movie stuff do you want for Christmas? Oh, so many things. I, well, first of all, I want to say just on the Christmas tree bauble thread, I have a an, an infinity gauntlet hanging from mm. my tree where the gems light up. Uh, and it, again, it, you're right, it's very heavy. It's very it pulls heavy. the branches right down. Heavy is the stuff. hand it's not that good. wears the gauntlet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This tree extracts a heavy toll. It does. It does. So, uh, yeah. So, so I, I have an Infinity Gauntlet. I've also got a long claw from Game of Thrones up there. I bet you do. Uh, indeed. Yes. I've got. got one of I've got a, a Lannister, a House Lannister bauble as well. Uh, I didn't choose that. I know. Is that for Red Christmas? Yeah. I have Game of Thrones <laughs> cookie cutters. I, I could be oh, making Game of Thrones cookies right now for like uh, Lannister, Stark, and uh, Targaryen. I have a Targaryen uh, logo cake mold. And I Oof. tried to make a cake. I tried to make a Targaryen cake, and it went horribly wrong because the, like the it, like the whole thing fucking disintegrated when it came out of the mold. So you still couldn't see what it was. But I made a Targaryen cake. It just didn't go well. Okay, well, we'll talk after this about cake release spray and things like that. But we'll, yeah, we can I, sort I, that I think out. I didn't put enough whatever the slimy stuff is. Is it called butter? Whatever you put on it to stop it sticking. Whatever I did, I, it went wrong. It went bad. But, but but to the to the question to the question, what do I want? Sort of movie related. Well. Here's the thing, and I'm kind of spoiling news a little bit here, but I think, uh, you know, I won't go into it massively, but some things have been disappearing off streaming services recently. Mm-hmm. And that has shaken me to my very core because like, we've all kind of blithely accepted that we now live in a world where we don't need physical media because stuff's just available. Except it fucking isn't because yeah. they can take it away at any minute. So now I'm like, ha, huh, I now feel that I need, frankly, Blu-rays of, well, everything I like, which is a lot, because I don't want some penny-pinching twat at a streaming service to decide I can't have it anymore. So all the DVDs, please, and all the Blu-rays. That's what I want. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm beginning to feel the same way. Like I've, a certain amount of complacency had kind of set in. I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. well, I, can, I, can, I know that one will be on Disney. Yes, th- stuff may come and go from, from Netflix and from Amazon, but, you know, Disney will definitely have that. But what if they start doing the same nonsense, you know, because yeah. they're all rapacious, you know, and and dying for money to spend on ridiculously heavy Christmas ornaments. So, <laughs> like, you know, maybe I need to get more stuff on Blu-ray. Good Lord. I know, it's upsetting because I'd been gradually retiring my physical media and just keeping a few things that I really love. And now I'm I'm not happy that that yeah. is a thing. I know. This is, you know. This is the way. I mean, there's so much that's not coming out anymore. Like, you know, things on Disney Plus don't really seem to be appearing that often on Blu-ray, which is a shame. I will once again uh, reiterate, I don't have a lot of movie-related stuff I want for Christmas. Not really. You know, I'd kind of like some of the lovely Ian Fleming James Bond books that are in the Folio Society. I'd like the story collection of Lowe's. Yes. I, I will say that's definitely one for me. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, not, not to read. Not to no, read. No, no, no. 100%. <laughs> so I, I collect those. I collect hardback books stroke. like that. To stick, yeah. to stick on a shelf. And uh, the, my favourite ones, the best ones I've got, are the Song of Ice and Fire books. They're like, of all the editions folio I've done, they are, I mean, they're so expensive. Oh, the Dune is pretty good too. Beautiful. Yeah, Dune is beautiful as well. I do yeah. have that. But the, the Ice and Fire ones are just stunning. I love them. Yeah. I have them in my bedroom. Uh, the, the, I have them on a wall at the bottom of my, foot of my bed. I've got just a bunch of shelves which has folio hardbacks on there. Uh, and it's it's it makes me happy when I wake up. I also have the complete is it is it the Unseen University Library collection, whatever it is. Those beautiful cloth bound Discworld. I've got the entire set of those again in my bedroom, uh, which I love. 
Yeah. Nothing but sexy times in my bedroom. uh, That's what I'm telling you. I mean, I, actually, that is the sexiest your bedroom has ever sounded. Yeah, like that's an entire it. set of Pratchett in there. It's like, ooh, I sit hello. there and read Terry Pratchett. <laughs> My word. Uh, that's exciting stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I was going to say real quick. I mean, again, I don't have much movie-related stuff on my on my wish list this year. Um, but definitely all the bluey merchandise in the world get me that. All the Hey Ducky <laughs> merchandise in the world get me that, obviously. Uh, it's for my daughter, of course, uh, and totally not for me. But, uh, yeah, I once again, I reiterate the uh, Infinity Saga box set on Blu-ray. That would be nice. That would be nice. If anyone wants to mortgage themselves to the hilt, I Good realize Lord. it's a cost of living crisis and we have to pay yeah. electric bills and, and whatnot, but that's put our priorities in order, people, shall we? Get me that box set and then we can start talking. Absolute right. monster. I will get you that, not at all, uh, and you have to get me the uh, Robin Hobb Assassin's Apprentice trilogy box set from Folio. Ooh, those are cute. Which is lovely. And I never bought that because I couldn't justify it because I have at least two other hardback versions of that book, but the folio one is really nice. No, that, that's the wrong way to think about it. If I'd thought that way, I would never have got the folio due. I have, I have it on paperback, I have it on ebook, Same. and yet here we are. You know, yeah, so. I have three, four, is it three or four. I think I've got four copies of June in various different imprints because I think it's like, yeah, so I've got the folio one. I've got my original one from the, I want to say, 80s. Uh, I have the film time one, but I've also got, you know, that really lovely sort of sand coloured, slightly abstract one of the sandworm, that printing mm. that they, the paper did a while ago. I've got that as well because it's lovely. Yeah. Similarly, I have about I got, I got a few different copies of Evil Dead 2 scattered around somewhere, just stashed around the house for emergencies, mm. <laughs> just, just Ooh, in case. I've had a thought. I want to ask you something on this. It's like, so I'm, I'm hijacking and we have another listener question. It's from James Dyer and he wants to know, what is the film you have bought the most versions of? Evil Dead 2. Really? Yeah, shadow, without a shadow of a doubt. Maybe maybe a Star Wars. Maybe. but uh, Maybe a Star Wars, but also Princess Bride I've owned at least four times, I think. I think I had it, like, obviously on VHS back in the day, yeah. and then DVD at least once, I think twice, and then Blu-ray. So it's just followed you through the formats. Yeah, and I've, I've got at least yeah. two copies of the book as well. I, I got a nice hardback uh, of that as well as the paperback. Um, so, oh, I've got that. Have you got the yeah. folio one? Yeah, it's lovely. I don't yet. No, damn it. It's very oh. nice. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've got a couple of diehards as well. I've got the Nakatomi Plaza diehard. Oh, oh nice. that's cool. Yes, you do. That's really that's cool. cool. I like that. It's completely impractical. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and obviously, diehards now streaming on Disney Plus. So, but For at now. least, you know. If Disney Plus, if Mickey Mouse goes postal and just takes a place down and shuts it all down or buys it, you know, Mickey Mouse buys out his own company for $44 billion and then proceeds to destroy it from within, resemblance to uh, people living her dead is entirely coincidental, then, uh, you know, at least I'll always have it. We'll always have a Nakatomi. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Mine's probably a Star Wars, if I'm honest with you, just because I got the, I had the original 4.3 VHS, then I got the widescreen VHS, then I got the THX VHS, then I got the special edition VHS, then I realised the special edition was also available in widescreen, so I got the special edition widescreen VHS, <laughs> then I got it on DVD when it was available as a box set, then I got it on Blu-ray when it was available as a box set, and then I got it in the I think, is the 4K one the most recent one I got? So yeah. And a partridge in a pear tree Aha! <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. There we go. Anna McLean and Nakatomi. Oh, now <gasps> I want to do. We've got to get back to rewriting carols. A movie related Twelve Days of Christmas that ends with a McLean and Nakatomi. Make it happen. Make it happen. Twelve Angry Men. Ocean's Eleven. Ten. Don't know. Yeah, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure okay. it out. 
Thank you for your question at James Dyer and You're at welcome. Chris Hewitt. Good questions. Uh, we do have some Christmas questions we'll try and tackle next week. Um, Helen, you're about to head off for the holiday, so I'm not sure if this is your last podcast or not. We're going to try and figure it out. Yeah, we're going to figure it out. If not, you know, happy Christmas, everybody. And screw you guys. I'm out of here. <laughs> Scrooge, you guys, more like. Oh, um, good. But anyway, speaking of Christmas presents, we have one for you, folks. We have one for you because episode 550 of the Empire podcast is just around the corner. And this year, once again, we're doing a live show, but we're not hijacking King's Place for an entire day as we did with the episode 500, largely because it nearly killed me to organize that. But this year, we are doing an evening show. So we started off with the live shows. We're doing an evening show on a school night, Thursday, February 2nd, episode 550 at our spiritual home of King's Place. And I believe tickets for that are on sale as of today, Friday, December 16th. It makes an excellent Christmas present for anyone who <laughs> that you hate and you would like to subject to an evening of film-related fun and giggling idiots and a star guest or maybe two star guests. <laughs> star guests, TBC. And uh, just us giggling idiots being giggling idiots. Uh, so I think, I think that's the big sell. Thursday, February 2nd. Episode 550, it's going to be off the fucking chain. Do come along to that. kingsplace.co.uk. Search Empire Podcast for tickets. There you go. Can't say fairer than that. Shall we have a guest? Yeah, let's do it. I'm going to save Sean Anders for the, for the end. That's a Christmassy treat. Shall we have James Cameron or Alejandro G. Inritu? I say let's start with James Cameron. James Cameron. Yes, indeed. James Cameron. So uh, you know him. He's the king of the world. He is the director of the biggest film of all time. Who knows whether Avatar The Way of Water will will take Avatar's crown 13 years after the original came out. But it is a stupendous visual feast. And you don't bet against James Cameron. Bet against him at your peril. Anyway, uh, what you're about to hear is the first 20 minutes or so, 15 to 20 minutes or so, of the live Q&A that I did with James Cameron at our very special Empire VIP Club event that took place in London just the other week. And the entire thing is available as an extended podcast, or it will be by the time you listen to this, on the regular feed as well. So that's going to feature a podcast in which Helen and James and myself nattered on about James Cameron and we would still have been there because there's a lot to talk about with James Cameron only James Cameron himself turned up and then we had to do a Q&A with him I mean I don't Ugh, know so rude directors just interrupting, interrupting. disgraceful quite frankly uh, so anyway this is going to be the first 15 to 20 minutes or so to wet your whistle to wet your appetite to see whether you want to dive in and if you do want to dive in there's more where that came from over on the regular feed so here we go me talking to James Cameron about Avatar The Way of Water and various sundry other things. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for the main event? Oh yeah, absolutely. Will you please welcome the director of The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, True Lies, Titanic, Avatar, now Avatar, The Way of Water, the legendary James Cameron! Thank you, Chris. Hello, sir. Welcome. Welcome. Oh, Jim. So you guys are all sugared up on junk food. That's great. <laughs> Good. They all have. They all have weirdly a bar of chocolate each. Is this? Is this true? 
Green and blacks. You ever had green and blacks? Everyone eat your chocolate now. <laughs> we'll get our sugar rush in about 20 minutes. And it's then a this will get thing. lively. Oh, yeah. It's going to get real lively. I mean, uh, we were just chatting about your films. We were talking about you behind your back uh, earlier on when you weren't here. And uh, and James, James Dyer there, who was on set of Avatar uh, for a couple of days, uh, he was saying to me that, uh, and everyone else, that you had at one point, you had on set a razor blade with Use a Film Sucks. Yeah, it was actually on the on the screen of my Avid in the cutting room, and it was actually on Titanic. And, you know, we, we just all thought we were doomed. Our careers were over. Hollywood had the long knives out uh-huh. waiting for this big stinko pile that was coming, you know, <laughs> that they'd all heard about. And it was like wildly over budget and, and could not but suck, you know. <laughs> that was the only choice. And uh, so I literally had a razor blade there. It said, use in case film sucks. <laughs> so that every day I would realize what the stakes were. Yeah. That's actually, that's actually a true story. That's amazing. And then finally somebody actually saw the movie. <laughs> I was like, uh, wait. <laughs> and realized what they had. Yeah. Did you have anything like that on, on Avatar? Because the stakes were equally out there. On yeah, that the difference was toward the end on Avatar, we kind of knew what we had because we were starting to see it all coming together in 3D. Uh, but the, weirdly, the some of the executives at 20th Century Fox didn't believe in the movie even when they saw it finished. It's like they couldn't get seeing everybody in their black tights with their marker dots out of their heads. They just couldn't not see that earlier, earliest screening. And mm. they just they just thought it sucked. And I'm talking about the finished movie that you all know. <laughs> and they wouldn't even put a billboard up in front of the studio. They had Alvin and the Chipmunks 2, <laughs> the squeakquel. <laughs> Instead of Avatar out, you know, in front of 20th Century Fox when you <laughs> when you drove down Pico Boulevard, it was like so nuts. Well, as we all know, Alvin and the Chipmunks too, the sequel became the biggest film of all time. I'll so never, I'll never forget it. Never forget it. <laughs> um, I want to take you back to the beginning, not the very beginning, because I think even you might not remember the very beginning. But I want to take you back to really the beginning of of Avatar. So you're 19. If oh, your yeah. mind is older. That's really the beginning. Yeah. It pops into your head in a in a dream almost, doesn't it? Right. So look, I mean, everybody dreams differently. Some people don't remember their dreams, but I've got like a full tilt streaming service that that's running all night long, right? And sometimes I get up and write down little bits of stories and stuff. And I remember one in particular. So I'm I'm 19. I'm in college. And I have this dream with bioluminescent trees and, and purple moss on the ground. You step on it and it kind of glows and there's a glowing river. The trees kind of look like uh, fiber optic lamps, which mm-hmm. is a look that we preserved into the actual film. And I, I remembered it so vividly that I actually got up and, and I used to draw in in um, oil pastels for color, right? Okay, yeah. So I drew a sketch of the, of the trees and the moss and the little spinning lizards, the little orange spinning lizards. It was all there, you know, uh, but it was just an image or a setting, if you will, right? And then so years later, I was thinking of of uh, a cool planet, you know, as part of a story I was writing with a friend of mine, a screenplay for a film we never made called Xenogenesis. And yeah. uh, so we had the bioluminescent world. And then years later after that, I was the CEO of Digital Domain, which was uh, the first all digital visual effects company. And I wanted to do something that would kind of, um, 
you know, elevate us in, in the development of CG characters and creatures and all that sort of thing. So I dusted off some of my old ideas and I wrote this thing called Avatar. And they all told me I was bonkers, that it, <laughs> it, it couldn't be done. And they were right at that time. But I figured it was only a matter of time before the, the CG kind of, you know, the tide of CG rose and the capability across the whole industry improved enough. And then that, that, so cut from 95 when that was written to 05. Mm. And, you know, I, I was developing uh, Alita Battle Angel mm. and I wasn't liking the scripts. And we, we set down the path to write one last script, one last try, script five. And I thought, man, this is, you know, maybe we don't crack the code on this. Um, so I pulled Avatar out from the back of the drawer and I read it. It's mm, not a bad story. Maybe we should develop that too. And I was thinking sort of the performance capture stuff could use it for Battle Angel, could use it for Avatar. So we just started developing performance capture, the technique for how to capture the faces. And so we did, that went along for a few months. And then we, we planned a huge test where we were just going to bring all of our tech together and try to figure out how to do facial capture, body capture, everything. And uh, I didn't have a scene. I looked at, I looked through Battle Angel. In the meantime, I got a pretty good script in for Battle Angel. I was like, okay, we can make that or we can make Avatar. And it was kind of a coin toss, but I was looking for a, a scene that had all CG characters. And if you ever saw Battle Angel Alita, it's mostly her in a scene with live action people or one of the other big cyborgs in a scene with live action people. There weren't, mm -hmm. there weren't any dialogue scenes that were, that were CG to CG character. Um, but there was one in Avatar when Jake first meets Nate Deity. So I just quickly wrote up that scene in a couple of days and that was our test. And then we never looked back. We just kept going forward on Avatar. And at a certain point, we noticed we were actually just making Avatar. Um, <laughs> but it really was kind of a coin toss. And then, I, you know, Robert Rodriguez wound up taking over for me to make, to make uh, Battle Angel Alita while I was, you know, doing, doing this film. Well, one of the, uh, the things about Avatar and its success was the way that people felt transported to Pandora. Right. You know, we've talked about this in the past a little bit, about how people felt that they actually wanted to go to Pandora. And, you know, well, and you live. saw the film, the new film. Did you mm -hmm. feel that sense of transport? I did, I did indeed. Uh, spoiler alert, everybody. But yeah, but yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the water is just, you know, I can't talk about it too much, but yeah, the, the, the scenes with the water is just beautiful. It's transportational. You just want to go there. Um, and that is something that, and then a lot of really bad stuff happens. And then really, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of bad stuff happens to uh, to to, to uh, well, I'm not gonna say anyway. But but in terms of how Avatar was transportational for you, at what point you you, you said there was a point where you realized we're just making Avatar. Was there a point when you realized, okay, I want to make Avatar two, three, four, five, and on? Yeah, it was. It wasn't the kind of no-brainer you might expect, right? So you make this high-grossing film, and then okay, let's make another one, right? But the way I looked at it was, you know, lightning just struck. This might be the only time this ever happens, and and do I really want to tempt the cinema gods and say, okay, do it again, right? I also had other things to do, frankly. I really liked deep ocean exploration. After Titanic, I took eight years off to do expeditions. Mm. 
and had the time of my life. And then I kind of crawled back to filmmaking, you know, make a little more money so I could do some more expeditions basically. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so Avatar worked out. So then I, you know, took a couple of years and, and we built a sub and, and went to the deepest places in the, in the world, uh, some of the deep trenches. And that was all, you know, really keen. And then, um, I thought, do I really want to do another Avatar film? You know, it's a gigantic risk. It's really expensive. Maybe it doesn't work as well the next time. I, I didn't even know there was a pandemic coming, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I thought about it and then I thought, all right, look, we can do a lot of good with this film. It's, it's good to, you know, attract attention to the plight of indigenous people around the world that are, who's, you know, native lands are being encroached upon and their cultures destroyed and all that. And, and since I wanted to set it in the ocean, I can deal with one of my most important subjects, which is sustainability and conservation of the oceans and mm -hmm. all that. So we can do some good here. Um, and plus I just, I just really like my team. You know, I had this great team. I had this great family of actors uh, and not just the actors you guys know from the movie, but the troop players, the ones that are the kind of unsung heroes that are playing all the other people in the movie. So if you see a crowd of 100 people, it's not 100 people. It's like 10 people 10 times. So, <laughs> you know, like there are a couple of our troop players on on The Way of Water that I think have played 22 characters. Wow. You know? And because they just really know performance capture, they know how it's done. They're just, you know, they're just solid experienced people. So we had this kind of avatar family and that attracted me as well. It's like, okay, well, let's not make just one more film. Let's make three more films. And then anything we develop, any money that we spend to improve the technology makes sense because we can amortize it over multiple films. Mm. Right. Mm. So there were some, you know, it was kind of a business strategy as well. But you have to succeed with the first one. I don't consider Avatar the start of a franchise. If we're successful with The Way of Water, that'll be the start of the franchise because then it's set up to have a proper cadence between releases. You know, much has been made of, oh, we don't even remember the names of the characters that had no cultural impact, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Compared to you know, Iron Man 2 comes out two years after Iron Man 1 and then there's the Avengers and then boom, boom, boom. I'm not not dissing them. I'm just saying that it is different, yeah. you know, and by the way, different directors on a lot of those films too. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to have that kind of cadence to stay in the conversation, stay in the zeitgeist, I've got to get it all teed up ahead of time. I got to get all my front end work, all the scripts done, all the design stuff done. So that all we're really doing is post-production, 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 because we're about two years just in post. That doesn't include writing, design, actually shooting it, actually working with the actors and all that stuff. So it was sort of like a very big startup torque mm. to get it launched again, which we will or we won't, you know, based on market forces and are there still enough theaters after the pandemic and all that stuff. But if mm. we get it launched, then three, then four, then five, it's all teed up. You see what I mean? Absolutely. So it made a lot of sense right up until the pandemic came along. And then it was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting because um, I don't think people remember the names of the lead characters in Alvin and the Chipmunks too, the squeakwell either. <laughs> maybe Alvin and... All right. Uh, anybody, yeah, well, it's, I've got that to cling to now, that, don't I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, going back to when you first had this idea, so it wasn't necessarily that you, you had this image, you had this image when you were 19. 
and your entire career was in service of making that image. No, 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 no. I mean, I had, I remembered it years later. I actually dug the sketch out, um, and it saved us. We got we got sued by eleven people that apparently <laughs> thought I had somehow, you know, used telepathy or something. And these are people that wear tinfoil on their heads. You know what I mean? Who thought that I had somehow stolen the idea from them? And you know, I whipped out this drawing that was you know dated in you know nineteen seventy two or whatever it was. And uh, oh, by the way, there was another one of a guy in a giant rainforest wearing a spacesuit that I drew in the eleventh grade, and it was literally signed. You know. Jim Cameron, 11C, you know, <laughs> dated. And I said, you know, I've been kind of thinking about this stuff for a while and I didn't frankly need your dumbass idea in order to make this movie. <laughs> and, you know, 11 out of 11 lawsuits went away very promptly when they saw all the drawings. Amazing. Uh, so just to go back to your your career and how you, you began, really, because um, you, you, you get your... I'm I'm fascinated by your your origin story, so to speak, uh, which you know, you've talked about. But the uh, the idea that you're driving a truck. Where were you driving the truck, Jim? I've always wanted to know. Okay, so it's uh, I'm living in Orange County, in you know near Los Angeles, and um, working for a school district, and I'm I'm driving a truck that brings the hot lunches to all the schools, so the little kitties, you know, kind of spaghettios, I you know, and the way I drove, I mean, about half of it stayed on the tray. <laughs> Basically, and I, I feel bad for those little kids now. They were probably all undernourished during the year, a couple of years that I was delivering their lunches. This is scurvy outbreak. And it's yeah, all your right. Fault. Exactly. All right. So that was James Cameron. We will be talking about Avatar The Way of Water later on in the show and all the other films that are released this week. Oh, wait. No, there's just Avatar The Way of Water. Almost as if every studio on the planet is running scared of it, which is interesting given that a lot of people have already written that movie off. Interesting. It's weird. Everyone's written it off except the box office experts, yes. isn't it? Funny that. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I, uh, no, I, I keep saying interesting, but I, I will be genuinely intrigued to see how it does at the box office and what sort of legs it displays because God knows the cinema industry could do with a big old hit because there, there are hits. Obviously, there are hits. Every few weeks, there's like a big old movie like a Black Panther, Wakanda Forever or a Top Gun Maverick or a Spider-Man No Way Home. But there's fallow periods in between and nothing's really connecting. Uh, we talk about this a little bit in our review of the year special, which is going to be going up in two weeks' time. So next week's podcast is out on the 23rd of December, uh, and that will be the last podcast of the year. And then the 30th of December, you're going to get the review of the year podcast special, full of, full of wonderful, not pessimistic chat about <laughs> the future of cinema and, of course, a look back at the year that was we had a lot of fun doing that one, even if we deviated from our, our regularly scheduled format mm. for that one. But yeah, good good stuff. Yeah, check it out. And then we'll be back. We're taking a week off in early January, and we'll be back as a regular podcast on the 13th of January. Now that everyone's been updated on our movements, not our bowel movements, that would be terrible. Let's get into movie news. And it's been it's been a I'm looking at Twitter right now. There mm. is a hashtag trending in, which simply says Hashtag fire James Gunn. What, I mean, what yeah. year is it? What year is it? <laughs> it th I think that's a little ridiculous, but certainly there was some there, there there were some decisions made this week at Warner Brothers and some stuff that came out this week, which has kind of um, uh, upset people. So yeah. basically, uh, this week, uh, Patty Jenkins said she didn't walk away from Wonder Woman three. That basically they just didn't want to make her film of Wonder Woman three. 
Henry Cavill also was was forced to go out and announce that basically, yes, uh, when you know he was told to announce he was coming back as Superman not quite two months ago, that now isn't the case any longer. And I mean, you know, I, I think the the Patty Jenkins thing is unfortunate because uh, I, I think that she has been kind of pilloried for uh, yes, underperforming, not as good as the first sequel, but. Like the fact, the way that all of her subsequent films seem to have been shut down as a result, I think is wildly disproportionate and completely makes no sense and isn't something that happens to male directors in the same position, generally speaking. This this is slightly worrying to me. It's also a, sh- a real shame that we don't get to see more, I guess, of her Wonder Woman. But the Henry Cavill thing, I mean, what a shit mm-hmm. show. You know, to to have him announce that two months ago, it's not like it's something he did off his own back. Somebody gave him a green light to say yes. We are bringing you back. You announce it publicly on your social threads. And then to have this happen. I mean, it could well be that James Gunn was also put in an incredibly awkward position because this announcement was made without his involvement either. But I mean, just Which announcement? The the, the announcement that he was coming back, I mean. Yes, but yeah. So to get the to, to you know clarify on the timeline, yeah. so Henry Cavill comes back briefly as Superman at the end of Black Adam. He is given the green light by people at Warner Brothers because the the new regime at DC Films of mm. James Gunn and Peter Safran was not in place no. at that point. He was given the green light by the powers that be. You're coming back. We're back on track. Superman, we're going ahead. Man of, Man of Steel two. I believe they were meeting with directors. It was it was all happening. He left The Witcher. Indeed. As a result of this, because his dance card was about to fill up with Superman stuff for the next couple of years, and he was obviously overjoyed about that, and he loves The Witcher, so that must have that must have torn at your heartstrings. But he went with Superman. Then they hired James Gunn and Peter Safran, and clearly, James Gunn and Peter Safran, and let's be honest, from a creative standpoint, I would say it's mainly James Gunn, right? James Gunn is going to be the one mm. who is plowing the creative furrow Peter Safran who's a producer and a very, you know, obviously a very creative producer I imagine will be handling other aspects of the DC slate going forward and they, you're right they've been put in something of an in- invidious position which is you know they have inherited a slate of movies that they don't particularly want clearly to really carry on with uh, and so they're they're planting a flag in the sand and saying okay What's past is prologue. That's all happening. You know, it may not even be prologue. It may not even count. Mm. We're going to start again. We're going to start afresh, and we're going to have a younger Superman. Liam Hemsworth in a, in a film that James Gunn <laughs> is yeah in a, in a film that James Gunn is writing and may be directing. Although I don't think he will. And sorry, Henry Cavill, it's not going to work out. We need a younger Superman, and it's 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 unfortunate for everybody involved, especially people who are involved with the DCEU, who have. Who have films that are yet to come out? James mm. Wan with Aquaman two, David F. Sandberg with Shazam, Fury of the Gods. You know everything that's happened on the Flash, but this may be a way of drawing a line under the Ezra Miller situation, which is certainly something I'm, I'm, I imagine that the hierarchy at Warner Brothers will want to do and move on as quickly and painlessly as he possibly can. Restart, but it, yeah, of course it's unfortunate for Patty Jenkins, it's unfortunate for Gal Gadot, it's unfortunate for Henry Cavill. And everybody who's 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 you know put blood, sweat, and tears into this, only to have their movies kind of be boxed off as some kind of Elseworlds type thing. Has Gunn issued a statement of any kind? Because I've read I've read Cavill's very heartfelt, heartfelt sort of like I won't be returning a Superman thing. What did James Gunn say? Because I didn't see that. 
he, he tweeted, he tweeted, you know, saying, look, you know, we're going to announce a, a slate in January. We're very, very excited about this slate and we're not going to be going forward. Essentially, I'm paraphrasing wildly here uh, from memory, but we're not, we're not going forward with Henry Cavill. And he did say he wants to work with Cavill in future, like, you know, yes. he hopes <laughs> to work that, with him in the future. It's just not as Superman. It feels, yeah. I feels like he's, I don't know, do you feel like he's mishandling this slightly? I mean, from a PR perspective, I'm not saying from a creative point of view, I actually have a lot of faith in James Gunn, I think he's great, but I, it feels like in terms of setting fire to a fandom and say what you will about the DC fandom, no, no, they're problematic, but it, it feels like he's, he's being quite muskian in the way that he's handling this. I don't know that he's being muskian at all. I he's think moving he fast and breaking you know, he, things. He, he has clearly come into this, this this DC films with his own ideas about what he wants to do, and he doesn't he doesn't want to be burdened by the past, and so he should be allowed to new broom sweep clean, kill the, the way past. that you know in the way that Marvel Studios did in two thousand and eight, and then and then down the line once you've established everything, if you want to, you know, draw upon the history of the past and you know bring in a Cavill Superman, you know, from a from a an, an infinite Earth, and uh, then you can do that. But I think clearly he wants to play in his own sandpit with his own action figures. I think, that, look, that, honestly, I think that makes sense. And it's clearly what I think he was promised by DC, was the, the, or by Warner Brothers, the chance to do that, the chance to restart this whole thing, which begs the question, what were they doing What in a, a very small number of weeks before they hired him, making these commitments to the future? Because they must have known at that point that they were planning a sea change. They must have been possibly in negotiations with James Gunn. At that point, so to give Cavill assurances is unfair to both men. I'm not saying mm. it's there's no bad guy here between Gunn and Cavill, as far as I'm concerned. I just feel no. like that that is a horrendous piece of bad management on the part of Warner Brothers. It's bad make, management, you know. I, yeah, I, I believe. I mean, I, I I don't know for sure, but I believe that the James Gunn Peter Safran thing was a fairly late in the day development. So I don't know. If they were necessarily in conversations with with them at that at that point, but you're absolutely right, and 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 it sucks for Henry Cavill, who really is a, a very good actor and a very um, fine Superman, who had the misfortune to find himself in not very fine Superman films. Yes, mm. I, think I think that's I think that's fair to say, and you know he was so looking forward to playing a more Christopher Reevean. Joyful Superman. Joyful is the word that he used to describe what his Superman was going to be going forward. And I, I, it's sad that we're, we're not going to get that. Of course, it's exciting for some young 30-year-old whippersnapper who's who's about to step into the uh, the red shorts. What do we think, by the way, about the idea of the earlier part of Superman's life being the focus of this new film? Smallville. I mean, Smallville. No, uh, no Daily Planet. Daily Planet stuff. So he's going to be in, in his early days. So I, I, I guess it's more, imagine... Spotlight with superpowers. Superman. Yes, spotlight with superpowers. Yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm, yeah. That's a I'm, joyful I'm, tonal shift. <laughs> all the president's supermen. I really, really, really hope that they show um, journalism in the underfunded light in yeah. which it lives, and that he is living in the worst apartment in the world. Like, how is he going to keep his super his identity safe? With 16 roommates all sharing one I, room. That's I my question. very much look forward to Superman being lectured as to why his headlines are not SEO friendly. I think that would be fabulous. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sad. Obviously, this is very, very sad. Uh, you're talking about the fan base that who are very, very agitated at the moment. Mm. And I imagine the fan base that's agitated at the moment, even more so, is the Witcher fan base who get Liam Hemsworth now instead of Henry Cavill. And again, with the best of will in the world and the, and the greatest respect to Liam Hemsworth, one of these things is not like the other. So. Yeah. I, I am one of those people. 
Yeah. <laughs> there, I'll tell you who is celebrating. It's all the people who wanted Henry Cavill as Bond. Now, I don't think that's a done deal. I don't think that's exactly necessarily the way they're going to want to go because they've also talked about going much younger with the new Bond. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, there, there, there have been so many comments, certainly in my feed over the last few days about, does this free him up to do Bond? Which I guess, yes. He, he's also, of course, going to be working on Warhammer, we learned uh, overnight, but which seems extremely up his alley and very, yeah. very much something he's passionate about. I, I don't understand it, except it involves little dolls. Is that <laughs> yeah, right? It does, little dolls. That's exactly it. He's a big fan of the Adeptus Custodes. But of course, and yes. I think we all know what that is, but just in case <laughs> like little drinking game is listening and hasn't yes, come across they it. Are, uh, they are those who, who defend the emperor, the god emperor himself. Uh, those are those are his, his chosen army. His little uh, Adeptus Custodes army. I see. Okay. We talked about well, it at length when we nerded out about Warhammer together. Nerd. Um, oh. Yes, uh, a must listen. <laughs> yes, it was a must listen. <laughs> uh, and of course, it, it does free him up over the Christmas holidays to build some more really nerdy shit. So I look forward at least to there keeping an eye on his Instagram. Yeah, maybe he will once again set the internet on fire by building a PC. Yeah. All right, so there are some other things did happen in the week. One of them is that the sequel to Twister, aka Twisters, has found its director. And I think if you were to write down, if you, if you first heard that they were going to make a sequel to Twister, and you wrote down the names of 100 directors, this dude would not have been on that list. Oh, I am fascinated by this. Do you know who it is? No, it's Terrence Malick, it's, isn't it? It's Terrence Malick. <laughs> uh, it's not far off. It's Lee Isaac Chung, the oh. writer and director of Minari. Huh. I mean, you know what? I'm, I can buy that. I kind of get that. Yeah? Yeah. I feel like, you know, well, first of all, he's got a great sense for a sort of farm, Midwestern kind of life, right? He can, he can do that. He can give us maybe a family dynamic of people at risk in those areas. It totally makes sense. There's only one tiny element of twisters that he hasn't handled in Minari, and that is the twisters. But genuinely, he's he's a great director. Huh. Whose idea was that? Did he go after it, or did, did someone at the uh, at Universal go, get me the Minari guy. That's who I want. I want this guy to be directing a CG cow flying through the air. J. Jonah Jameson in charge of the studio now. Yeah, get me Chung. That's what he, that's what he said. Yeah, I, I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by this. Uh, I thought the first Twister was uh, appalling. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I loved it at the time. Flying cow. Yeah. Who doesn't yeah. love flying cows? Listen, it has so many elements I love. I love Bill Paxton. Mm. I love Carrie Elwes. I love Alan Ruck. I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. I love Helen Hunt. I love wind. I love flying cows. I love Jan de Bond. I love all of these things. I love Steven Spielberg. But unfortunately, it came together and went, <laughs> in my opinion. There you go. It was fun. Stick that in your Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, fine. Find my ass. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, here's the thing that kind of blew my mind this week. So there's a video game called Death Stranding by Kojima, Hideo Kojima, and that is making its way towards the big screen. Kojima Productions are going ahead with a movie of this. Now, this is interesting from a few points. Uh, and one is that his games, so Kojima's very famous for the Metal Gear Solid games, one of which, and I want to say it was four I think it was four, could have been three, I'm going to say it was four, had literal hour-long cutscenes. 
sometimes involving frying an egg. Like, genuinely, it was almost beyond parody. I'm like, am I going to get to play this game at any point, or am I literally just watching people cook breakfast? Uh, and Death Stranding, again, has very long cutscenes. Death Stranding is a very odd game. It is essentially Deliveroo the game. So you play, oh. you're in this post-apocalyptic landscape, and you play Sam Porter Bridges, played by Norman Reedus, and your job is to pick up packages and take them to other places. But the slight wrinkle to this is that some of the people that you pick up packages for are Edgar Wright and Guillermo del Toro, both of whom star in the game. And there's one point where I was like, I've spent the last seven hours shipping things for Edgar Wright and Guillermo del Toro. And I'm not entirely sure at this point where my day job and my gaming life begin and end. Uh, so I did in the end stop playing Death Stranding, but I am fascinated that they are turning this into a film. The mythology of it is actually really dark and twisted. And it's about this sort of separation between uh, life and death and the stranding of sort of dead people on the shores of life. It's actually quite cool. But uh, yeah, there's, there's no director attached to it. There's no stars attached to it. I think it's going to have new people as opposed to Norman Reedus himself. Norman Reedus himself has other jobs. Walking Dead is finished, but he's going to be in The Ballerina, which was announced this week as well. Mm. The John Wick spin-off. So, so yeah, a bit of Reedus news on both counts. Yes, indeed. Yes. Okay. Uh, cut your hair, Reedus. I like oh. him with his long hair. I think people would riot oh. if he cut his hair. Yeah, that, that is uh, possible. If, mm. if Daryl cuts his hair, we riot. That's it. Is that what it <laughs> is? That is it. Yeah, that, that was it. it. Um, there was also news that um, Miyazaki is making a new film uh, this week, which is Pretty pretty fantastic. So uh, The Wind Rises in 2013 was meant to be his last film uh, as a director. Uh, he, he, in theory, retired, but in practice, I don't think I don't think he did at all. I think he's basically he's been in the office every day. Yeah, he's, he's Soderbergh kind of retirement. Um, yeah. My grandfather did the same thing. He retired, went into the office every day for the next 10 years, and then worked from home for 10 years. Go figure. But yeah, this is apparently uh, July next year in Japan. Not quite sure when here. Tentatively titled How Do You Live? And all we've seen so far is what looks like a pencil drawing of basically a crane. But that's that's sort of all we have. We don't know anything about the story. We don't know anything about the plot. But the Grandmaster is back, back, back. Grandmaster Flash or just? Grandmaster Miyazaki. Oh, yeah. right. Grandmaster Miyazaki. Okay. Yes. Very, very good. Cat buses all around everybody to Yay. that one. Uh, and there were a couple of trailers this week. Uh, we're aware that the Barbie trailer is dropping today and that we haven't seen it. It's in cinemas right now as it is meant to be seen. Uh, on the biggest screen possible. Uh, <laughs> but there was there was another trailer there, wasn't there? There, there, there was. were a couple of trailers. There were a couple of trailers this week. For one in particular. Uh, so, Barb, which one are you talking about? Well, like, you go through yours. You go through yours. No, no, we'll, no. We'll no, get to we'll, it. Because you seem, you seem very excited about I'm very so excited. One, I'm very excited. But I'm, I mean, you guys saw this before I did. But I did see the trailer for it. And I don't think it's exaggerated to say the best film ever made. I think we have seen the trailer for the best film ever made, which is 65. And, 65. <laughs> and... And look, hey, I know we were promised the best film ever made in Moonfall. And one might argue, you know, I, it's up for debate. One might argue that Roland Emmerich did not, in fact, deliver the best film ever made, despite no, promises. Terrible. However, I am reasonably confident that this film, <laughs> 65, is now the greatest film ever made. Are there any dissenting yes. opinions? There are I, no dissenting opinions. No, it, the only thing is it's coming out in a year in which the Equalizer 3 exists. And that's that's the only thing. <laughs> that's the only thing that could possibly stop it. But as far as I'm concerned, 65, in which Adam Driver <laughs> plays uh, a... It's basically Planet of the Apes, yeah. but in reverse and with dinosaurs. Yeah. Adam Driver is a super spaceman who flies through space and there's an accident on his super spacecraft. And he crash lands on a planet and there's only one survivor on his ship, which is a, a little girl that he must 
you know, keep alive in the Adam Driver fashion. So hunky hero Adam Driver rather than mopey bus driver Adam Driver. And that's the one we've got this this time. Hey, uh, I love the Mopey Bus Driver film, for this, the record. This, if this was a sequel to Patterson, I am all there. I am totally in. <laughs> oh but it turns out that they're on, they're on a planet and there's lots of things trying to kill them. And the things trying to kill them are dinosaurs. They're dinosaurs. Because it seems like the twist of the movie, and they've given it away in the trailer, is that he's not on an alien planet, but he's gone to the first planet of the apes and gone back in time to 65 million years ago when dinosaurs ruled the Earth. But that also means, if I'm right in thinking, there's a big-ass motherfucking comet coming that's going to wipe out all life on Earth and he has to figure out a way to get him and his little girl, who's not his little girl, but the little girl who he's kind of adopted in the nude fashion, back to the future. Oh my God. Yeah. Is this Back to the Future Part 4 it's, before everyone goes splat? It's everything Jurassic World Dominion wasn't. It is. Uh, <laughs> this, it's glorious. It's The Last of Us meets Planet of the Apes meets Back to the Future meets Jurassic Park. It is all these things in a blender. It is Adam Driver shooting at T-Rexes with a space machine gun. And oh my God, I must see this film. Um, <sighs> I'm, I'm, I'm super here for it. It, it, it. it had little tiny touches of pitch black about it to it me. Did. Well, more than a little, it did. Um, which is never a bad thing. Uh, it also reminded me of one of my favourite sci-fi series, Julian May's Saga of the Exiles, which if you haven't read, you should totally read. Is that the one that begins with The Many Coloured Land? Yes, it is. It's yes. really good. Yeah. Uh, that's set a mere six million years ago, which barely counts. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, this looks great. Can't wait. Yeah, it looks fantastic. This is from Beckett and Woods, Scott Beck and uh, Brian Woods, who, who wrote the original draft of A Quiet Place that John Krasinski then Krasinski'd up uh, a little bit. But, uh, you know, that got them... They're, they're foot in the door, and this if this is the result, the greatest movie ever made, then that's okay. I'm happy with that. <laughs> well, it's the greatest movie ever made, of course. We all agree on that, apart from maybe The Equalizer 3. But it yes. does have competition for the greatest movie of next year, because Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse also released a trailer this week. And it's the sequel to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is maybe the greatest film ever made. So, uh, behind Jean Dielman, of course. So, you know, it's... It's a really, it's going to be a good year, I think, 2023. But this this um, trailer looks really fun. It looks like it's got the emotion of the first. It looks like it has absolutely doubled, tripled, and exponentially increased the amount of spider person madness. I would like to just lead off any further discussion by apologising for the conduct of my cousin Miguel uh, during this trailer. He seems to have beef with our hero. This, uh, the Miles Morales uh, Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a little bit of a concern, but otherwise, like, super, super into this. The animation style, again, looks uh, wild and crazy and free, and I couldn't be more happy about it. Yeah, I, I liked it. There's a lot, a lot, a lot going on. But yeah, it's, it was quite joyous. It was quite fun. And it was, there was some emotional punch in there as well, some sort of parent-child relationship, Miles with his mother. Uh, yeah, I, I think hopefully we'll bring what the first one did, which is like the spectacle and the wackiness and the craziness, but also a lot of heart. So, uh, yeah, here for this one. Yeah, Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099. Uh, great comic, if you've never read that. I have indeed, it, when it first came out. Uh, I have it in the loft. Oh, really? Yeah, that's I have my I have, first I edition in the loft. Oof. In the loft somewhere. It. It'll be worth absolutely no, it, Yeah, because they printed uh, so many of them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm very, very excited about this. And yeah, it looks, it looks absolutely crazy in the best possible way. And the, the, the twist seems to be that Miles and Gwen, Spider-Gwen, seem to be... Sitting in a tree? The, sitting in a tree, but also seem to be targeted by the other Spider-People. Something's gone wrong and they're all being, you know... 
and they're all being chased by the other spiders. So yeah, this could be this could be very 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 good indeed. And uh, one other trailer to talk about is uh, Scream Six, which seems to be called Scream Six, despite the fact that the last one, which should have been called Scream Five, was called Scream. Fucking hell! Make up your minds. So call this one Scream Two if you're gonna adhere to this new naming system. Then you you have to call this one Scream Two. You have to. Why not Scream Takes Manhattan? That never went badly wrong for a horror franchise before. Yeah. So yeah, Scream X. <laughs> Scream if you want to go faster. Yeah. The name of Jerry Halliwell's solo album, I believe. That sure. sounds horribly familiar. Or at least at least a solo single that she that she made. Um. Anyway. <laughs> How would the Spice Girls fare against Ghostface? That's what I want to see in the next one. Of course, Ghostface wouldn't stand a chance. But uh, this one looks interesting. So this time they've taken the survivors of the previous Scream um, to New York. Concrete jungle where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do except evade the clutches of Ghostface, it seems, who is back and is uh, hunting down our heroes from the last movie. And yes, I know their names. Uh, and there's a spooky sequence in which they're all on a subway train, and there's loads of people dressed as Ghostface in a kind of echo of the opening of uh, Scream Two, with Jada Pinkett Smith in the um, in the in the movie theater. I really hope this one doesn't give away the opening kill. I feel mm. it does. It, it I may feel do. it does. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Scream Six coming out in March. The next great film director has been revealed, and it is Taylor Swift who is making a movie. So yeah. her writing and directorial debut has been announced over at Searchlight Films. We do not know the title of this thing. It's going to be, I guess, some, it's, a, it's a personal thing that she's written herself and obviously will be directing. She directed the short film off the back of her 10-minute version of All Too Well, which had Dylan O'Brien and Sadie Sink in it. So I guess, she, and they've been making a lot of, shall we say, noise about that. Uh, they received, uh, released behind the scenes of the making to show her in director mode. There was her in conversation with Martin McDonough in Dan at Vanity Fair. So very much positioning her as a serious filmmaker. And, you know, as a, as a Swifty, I'm very excited. Well, look, I mean, as long as she doesn't do Cats, then she should be absolutely well, fine. Well, yes, admittedly. She, she would have done a better job, yeah. in fairness. Release the bumhole card. Not of hers. Not I'm just, near, oh God, this has gone wrong. Uh, but you know what I mean. That noise you can hear a dozen of Taylor Swift's exes, uh, buttholes puckering <laughs> up in fear about what this film <laughs> might, might contain. <laughs> but uh, oh. yes, very exciting indeed. Yeah. Some sad news to round off the movie news. Uh, portion of the podcast is the sad death of the great composer Angelo Badalamenti, uh, obviously a long-time collaborator of David Lynch, mm. one, of the, one of the very best to do it as far as I'm concerned. His Twin Peaks soundtrack soundtracked <laughs> my teenage years. He was fantastic, wonderful master of mood and uh, offbeat instrumentation. And, you know, he was he, he was a broad church with Angelo Badalamenti, so he could do David Lynch movies, and he could also do National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So all power to him. He was 85 when he passed away this week. And, uh, yeah, but from, from all accounts, an absolute legend. Reading the, uh, the obituaries, I hadn't read huge, huge numbers of, you know, interviews with him or essays about him before, but... Um, he just comes across as, as as a really good person as well as everything else. And, and yeah, as you say, what a broad church of films. Secretary as well, which is a great one. A very long engagement, had a beautiful score. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, fantastic. He will be missed. He was, yeah. And uh, I, I put it on Twitter, but he did an album in the, in the 90s. He did loads of collaborations with different artists. He did an album in the 90s called Booth and the Bad Angel, I think it was called. 
which which he collaborated with uh, Tim Booth from James. And there's a great song on there called I Believe, which is uh, which is a belter. So check that one out. Mm. And watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation if you needed an excuse as a tribute to the great Angelo Badalamenti. Tis the season. Tis the season. Holy shit, where's the Tylenol? Right, so... Second guest, second guest time. I think it is. I think it's time for a second guest, and that second guest is Alejandro G. Inaritu, as he is billed these days. The Gonzalez has become just a G, and he is, of course, the Oscar-winning director of compelling fare like Birdman and The Revenant, and of course, uh, Beautiful and Babel, and you know he is one of one of the great visionaries in cinema, and he is back this week with a very, very personal film, very semi-autobiographical film called Bardo. Not about Bridget Bardo. Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Uh, This is about a documentary maker who, uh, it says here, goes on an introspective journey to reconcile with the past, the present, and his Mexican identity. So it's on Netflix right now. It opened in cinemas a couple of weeks ago, but it's on Netflix as of today. And we sent Amon Warman along to interview Alejandro G. Inaritu when he came over to the London Film Festival back in October. And here is their chat. Very exciting indeed. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the writer, director and co-composer of Bardo, Mr. Alejandro Gonzalez Inaritu. Welcome, sir. Yeah, Thank you very I'm much for very excited to talk to you about the composing aspect of it uh, later <laughs> on because I got questions. I, I, I love that side of the filmmaking process. But I mentioned the film title there, Bardo. The full title is actually Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. I think before that, it was called Limbo. So how did we arrive at uh, the title Bardo? Mm -hmm. Why the change? Well, I think that uh, Limbo, in a way, and Bardo share some kind of common meaning. Limbo is much in a Catholic tradition where babies who die early and have not been baptized, they are supposedly caught in this space between hell and heaven, right? They don't have access yet because nobody baptized them, which I thought was a little bit limited. And Bardo, in the Buddhist uh, tradition, in a way, it's this space where uh, something ends, is the end of something, and is kind of the process where something will born again. so, so in a way, I thought that Bardo represented a little bit more of what I wanted to say were this uh, character and how I felt mm. personally in my life uh, in this kind of space that is full of some uncertainties, you know, and that things are dying and some other things possibly could grow from that. And the false chronicle of a handful of truth, I think, is very clear in a way the chronicle as a, as a genre is something that allow you to do and to explore with essays or, or memories and, and commentary and journalism. And, you know, it's a very eclectic uh, genre that allow a lot of things. And I want this film in a way to navigate through a chronicle. It's not a, it's not a fact. It's not historical. It's not autobiographically. It's just a pastiche, a collage of all these elements of feelings, emotions, dreams, sensations, and observations, commentaries. And anyway, with some false notes, yeah. fiction, and yeah. some very truthful ones. Yeah, yeah. No, you definitely kept me guessing what is real and what is not. I, I, like, I love that aspect of the film. Um, 
a lot was made when The Revenant came out that it was a very difficult movie to make. How would you compare the making of this movie to that? Very different. I think um, Revenant has a lot of challenges, obviously, with a lot of exterior um, uh, situations of the weather and, and obviously blocking scenes with action and things like that uh, in a very remote uh, locations. Um, it was a genre movie, you know? Uh, so there are some rules. In a way, rules can be challenging, but at the same, you have, you have some guidance. Um, here, differently, it, it's a much more intimate space that you are dealing with emotions and, and feelings and memories and things that come from, a, from the from very interior kind of perceptions that are almost impossible to grasp and try to transport that to images. And, and how to block that, how to really make that really, uh, how, to, how to flesh out the dream. That was the challenge of this, of this film. So it's a very different challenge. Yeah. You know? yeah, no, absolutely. You mentioned the rules that The Revenant had that this one does not. I imagine in some ways that makes it more daunting, as you say, but is there freedom in that too, making a movie without having to adhere to an act one, act two, act three structure, for instance? Yes, I think I think you you just need to have confidence and to be. I I, I try to really just. This is conceiving three, thirty two sequences, and each sequence for me was an important, an atmosphere more than anything that was meaningful, that I wanted to share from a very intimate space with a lot of vulnerability, fragile doubts, fun, a lot mm-hmm. of humor to laugh about myself, to not take anything serious, and try that to try to see pain in another light and visually in a way to represent how you or how I felt my feelings, my dreams, my fears, my regrets, my things. And, and in a way, it, it no structure in a way is a liberating way to create, mm-hmm. you know, with no rules, but you have to have confidence. So things are not right or wrong or good or bad. Is just this film needed to be liberated from the conventional rules of storytelling because it was not a storytelling. It was, again, a chronicle navigating from all these things that I have just said, yeah. and it needed that. Mm-hmm. And I know that some people can be irritated by that because we are very used now to the frames of the structure of the content, as they say, of this industrialized way to perceive and consume things. But I think we need to shake that and allow to, to young people to talk about their intimate spaces with no fear of rules, because I think that will reduce a lot the experience. I think it's happening. So anyway, you have to trust about what is important for you. Yeah. And then somebody will find it interesting and some others not, and somebody will be mad about it too, but that's, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a very personal film for you. Mm-hmm. How have the people in your life reacted to you putting some of the experiences uh, mm. that you shared from your personal life on mm. screen um, because I think about some of the stuff that sort of happened to you personally mm. that they're on screen in a way in this film such as uh, the stuff with the baby for instance so what's been the reaction of your family uh, mm. to this film? Well I think uh, you know one of the good things about it is that uh, when we moved to to to, um, to Los Angeles and California 21 years ago in a way we cut out all those roots of of your grandparents and friends and all that. So we became kind of a very close family. That was one of the great things about mm. it. 
So we are very close, you know, my kids, my wife and I. So in a way, when I started doing this, I shared with them the, the process of it. They knew. And they were incredibly supportive and respectful. They gave me a space. They gave me notes or commentary, but always very beautifully, you know, uh, respectful about it, knowing that they gave me the freedom to express myself as I wanted. But always I took in consideration things that they were allowing me to, to be more wiser, actually even brighter and tr more truthful about it, you know? And so in a way they, they really participate in a very beautiful way and I understood things that they comment. And obviously we share this personal experience as a family. So these things is a lot about uh, many things, as you said, about the loss, the, the, the kid that we lost and things like that, that has been hanging. And in a way, I feel that the repercussion or the outcome of that has been in a way very liberating for us. You know, there's nothing to hide. It's just to share something that has been hanging there. So it, it was, it was, now, my family in Mexico has not seen it, so let's see. <laughs> okay. You let me know about what that reaction is like. I'm exactly. very I will tell you about it. <laughs> um, the cinematography in this movie is incredible. Uh, some of the long takes, the dance sequence is amazing. And I was just wondering, when you're writing this movie in your head and you're envisioning how the sequence might look, are you envisioning them in long takes uh, and crafting the, the, the screenplay to sort of match up with the filmmaking when it gets to that point? Are you doing it from that early in your process? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think there, there's a couple of things here. One is the, the, the most important, I think, what the shot in a way for me, the, 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 the grammar of the, the language, or the grammatical language of a film has to be subordinate to what really First of all, the point of view of what that moment is coming from, who is experiencing this, which character is, is experiencing that. So you design that, that camera move, subordinate to that principally for me. That's the most important, to attach that moment and that emotion of that moment to one person. And in, because in this case, it was him, and there was a liquid kind of element that being him in his own consciousness and observing his consciousness from the point that people will discover at the end of the film that everything is happening from that very moment, I think I wanted to give this scene a kind of a dream sensorial element atmosphere that is not actually real, is real, but there's something off and there's something floating as, as we experience dreams. So that's the camera decision moving. It's not just to be fancy or just to be technically impressive. I hate that. I try always to disguise that with great or elements that in a way the blocking makes sense with having stories being told, like the friend coming in front of a thing, then the girl, then the wife that catching him, then the kids. So in a way, I'm telling a story about how the family is having fun with all this context of this Mexican cathedral of dancing, that he's recouping the fun and the liveness and the colorful and the life of Mexico. So, but yes, coming from that. And the other thing is, honestly, man, I, I, I did my first film with a lot of fracture structures mm -hmm. and shooting with a lot of cuts. Mm. And I'm not very excited about it anymore. You know, <laughs> I, I, I like the challenge of trying to solve things 
like when you paint without taking out the pencil from it, like like that exercise for me is a beautiful exercise too, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. I imagine it's an interesting experience for the actors as well, sort of rising to that occasion, you know, one long take, don't mess up. And, you know, I, I imagine that they're sort of up for uh, shooting like that. It combines a beautiful technique, which is you suddenly are in the theater kind of approach, which is the the you, in a way, get the through through the repetition and blocking with incredible precision the moves you own technically and physically the scene right so the actors in a way domain as in theater the 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 perfect uh, physical needs of that scene true repetition so you own that when that is integrated in your body and your mind, then you can create because you are not worried anymore about the timing, the steps here, three steps there. And then when you have a long take and then you have the other advantage of that, which is not the mechanization, but the rush and the adrenaline mm. of one single take that is <laughs> scary as hell. Yeah. So the two, the combination of the, the, the control and the confidence of having that integrated with the fear mm of being present because you need to be really concentrated to really make everything work as a clock work. I think that's very exciting. I, I, I think it takes a lot of time, mm. but when it happens, it's exhilarating as a process. And I think as, as a visual uh, cinema moment, I, I love that. I, that's what I like now in my life. You know, I know there's no right or wrong or better or not. This, I think for me, makes sense. That, that, that's what excites me now. There's a line in the film which has really stuck with me. Um, it's about success. It's that scene uh, with you and yeah, with, with, with the main character and, and his father um, about success. I'm paraphrasing, but taste a little bit of it and then spit it out. Mm-hmm. Is that a philosophy that you share? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a line of my father, actually. Mm-hmm. Like with success, you just, just make a little goggle, whatever, yeah. and then spit it. Because if not, it can intoxicate you or it can poison you. And it's true. I think I think success and failure is they are they are big liars, right? They can really filter reality because there's nothing really real there. It's a mirage, right? I think success is a mirage because once you get the success, no matter if you are a dentist, a lawyer, a banker, a taxi driver, a journalist, or a filmmaker, or a painter, whatever, uh, once you get what you wanted. Uh, always desire come with some kind of mm, disappointment, you know, because once you get what you think it will change something in your life, you realize that it doesn't happen. You know, there's no place called success. It's just part of a process that is like smoke. It's a mirage that when you get there, you are the same guy. You are the same idiot. Mm. <laughs> I am the same idiot. Got it, what I do. So whatever, it, it, I think that that sensation, we all have, have it at some point. So I think that's what I think, uh, Silverio. And I personally have been going through that. I think success, it's, it's much more about much more deep, intimate things than to achieve things exteriorly or, or that, that people conceive as a success. There's, there's a lie there. And the same failure, right? When people feel that they have failed, it's, it's a mind game. And it's, it's maybe others' perception or is what they think other people think about that. It's, it's anyway, the, the relative nature of that is what Silverio is questioning, you know. Bearing all of that in mind, 
When you won your Oscars, how long did you take to enjoy your success before getting back to work? Bearing that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I, I, I have to say there's nothing wrong with really achieve things. I think it's, it's a lie to say that people doesn't care. No, I think it's great that you connect with people, that people in a way can, can you create things to share with people, to be connected, to be loved, actually. We all make things to be loved. That's the real reason that we all create whatever we do. We want to be loved. We want to be understood. We want to be, you know, connected. So when that happened, when peers, in the case of the Oscars, that do the same as you, you know, share uh, or in a way celebrate and got your work, it's a great reward. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is, that will not change right. the interior thing. So yes, obviously it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful feeling, especially when you have these personal interactions with people that you love your work or you love themselves, and you have a hug, and you have a smile, and you you have a writing text or an email expressing what they feel and what your work make people feel. That is success. That is that is really what you make things for. You know more than the statue. It's more about the emotions that it was triggered by your work. That is really beautiful. And that stays with you, by the way. That stays with you. And that's the only reward to make a film, but the films will stand in time and the time will tell. Mm-hmm. But during time, people will be being, being sharing with you whatever you wanted to express. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and that stays. I enjoy that. I enjoy that part of that. I don't, I don't complain. <laughs> it's good. not a complain. It's, it's a complain. joyful thing. Yeah. But you understand what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, 100%. You know, 100%. People can misinterpret. It. Oh, yeah. this guy is privileged and he's war. And now he's saying no. No, it's great. It's just I'm talking about something deeper that is hard to sometimes to convey. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mentioned I wanted to uh, talk about uh, you composing uh, this film. It's not often you get a director who also does that side of things. What motivated that choice for you? And what did you seek to do with the music to help tell the story? Well, I, in this case, you know, I, I, I wanted, I, ha- I have a very clear idea from the beginning that I wanted to have a, a metal uh, sound and Mexican music in a traditional way. There's this, you know, very uh, uh, ancient tradition of these uh, 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 town, uh, small towns bands that they play exquisitely uh, with an out of tune. <laughs> element that is very hard to do because even the academic musicians cannot do that. But these guys, in a way, are great musicians, but they are not study guys. So there's something very powerful and soulful in their, in their music. And, and the metal band kind of thing, I want. There's some element, too, about my father was a whistle guy, and he had a whistle that I do not remember, and I have been obsessed about that. So there's an element in the film about that. I, I'm in, the, in the film, as you can see, I'm trying to recoup all these very deep personal things that were meaningful for me, and they were not big. And uh, so I knew the tune of, of something, that I knew the tone of, of the music, but I was hesitating. And during this process of writing the script, I was whistling myself in the phone about possible you know, melodies that can make sense for me. And when I decide to go with Bryce Dessner, which is an incredible musician, like 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 an incredible eclectic musician of jazz and and and, and classic music and uh, pop band and with the Nationals, and I share with him the idea and the concept, and I send him the melodies. He said, Alejandro, 
this is great, let's do that. <laughs> so in a way, most of these tunes became the source of that. And then we start sharing all that, and then we went to Mexico, and then we record with the Mexican band from Oaxaca. So we shared the process very much, and he really obviously make all the arrangements and the director, but we collaborate very nicely, and he was so generous to really allow me to, to be part of this process, which I love, and uh, so it was organic. I never planned it. It just yeah. happened. It just happened because the need that I had to, 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 to express something that was, again, very, very deep and personal, you know. Alejandro, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right, so that was Alejandro G. Inderitu talking to Amon Warman, and now it is time to delve deep into the films that are out this week at the multiplex uh, or on your sofaplex. And there are a couple of films that aren't Avatar The Way of Water on the old sofaplex. One is the aforementioned Bardo False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, which is on Netflix right now, all 159 minutes of it. It is we thought certainly one of the less successful Inderitu movies of recent years um, and we gave this one three stars but check it out this weekend uh, if you are not already checking out on Sky Helen the mm. amazing Morris or Maurice? Maurice uh, I think Maurice yes this okay. is an adaptation of a Terry Pratchett book it's an animated version of the tale and it's basically about a cat and a bunch of rats they can all talk and basically, they have a scam going where the, the rats will go into town and make trouble, and then the cat will turn up and essentially chase them all out of town and get paid for it and then share the proceeds. And they sort of go from time to time doing this until something goes a bit wrong in this particular, in this particular place where they rock up. Um, I thought this was okay. I love Terry Pratchett. You have to understand this is where I'm coming from. I love Terry Pratchett. I think he is one of the most uh, genuinely important authors out there, also one of the funniest. And um, and this is a minor Pratchett, right? But but even so, like the sort of the the, the attempt to make it into a sort of um, wacky cartoon by numbers, I think doesn't always work. And I think it, it is strongest when it leans into the Pratchetty weirdness and this doesn't always do that. So there are moments that I absolutely adored. It, it does stick a couple of things when it comes to the landing and it has a lot of Pratchett stuff in the background which I really enjoyed kind of spotting familiar characters and familiar things. But but overall, I thought it was a bit just cartoony. Yeah, I agree. Like it, this, So this is canonically Discworld, isn't it? It's one of the, the, the yes. sort of the child-oriented Discworld stories. So not exactly canon. Well, it is canon, but it's not integral, certainly. Um, I think, I mean, they made some some changes from the source material. And as you said, like I think Terry Pratchett is one of these things, as you said, is one of the greatest writers ever. And he has been poorly served, generally speaking, by any ad- adaptations of his work. I'd say Good Omens is probably the closest anyone's ever got to really nailing it. Yeah. Uh, certainly the disc was sort of like the watch was terrible. Like the various things they've tried to do from Rinse Wind and whatnot, Colour of Magic, just no. I think they did a good job here with the casting. Uh, I really do. Mm. Like Hugh Laurie is a great Maurice. He's brilliant in that role. Uh, and he gives a real sort of life and personality to that cat. Uh, my favourite actually character in this is Melissa, which is um, uh, Amelia Clark, because she does this sort of frame narrative as a narrator. She's this sort of slightly goth mayor's daughter. But yeah. she has a slightly snarky, very meta commentary in this frame narrative that she gives it as she narrates the story. None of that will be understood by this film's target audience because it does skew quite young but it gives something for us oldsters to to latch onto. I think Himesh Patel is really fun as Keith and also I enjoy the names of the rats like sardines and dare I say it dangerous beans 
but uh, but yeah, and dangerous beans. Indeed, I, I, it is quite slight. I think really, I think that is it. Like it's not ratatouille. It's a bit fluffy. You know, there's some slightly subversive stuff in there when the quote unquote real Pied Piper turns up and stuff. But uh, and also the death of rats is there, and that obviously makes a film twenty percent better. It does get a bonus for that. Yeah, but yeah, plus any town called Furry Bottom. <laughs> You want to kill rats? You disgraceful human. No, no, the death of rats is a person. The death of rats. A nice person. I've got one on yes. my Christmas tree. Um, but anyway, <laughs> our Ben gave this two stars. Yeah, that seems... Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's verging on harsh, but it's not wildly yeah. off. It's somewhere between a two and a three, but they, they obviously got Ben's ire, so... If Ben Travis is moved to give a film less than three stars, because he gets the three stars just for existing, everyone yeah. being great, Unless it's everyone got being lovely people. Godzilla solo in it. Yeah. Does Godzilla turn up at one point? <laughs> well, no spoilers. That might, be it. that might be it. Wow. Godzilla, King of the Morrises, is out right now. It's, a, it's another Belting Sky original <laughs> from the sound of things. They've done it again. Uh, two stars. Two stars for the amazing Morris. And uh, it's, a, it's a minor it? Morris. <laughs> it's a minor Morris. Uh, oh. <laughs> That's good. That's yeah, was it, was, it, was there any? Were there any other films this week? No, Anything no other films. Big? That was the only one out this week. There was, Just checked, there was nothing. Uh, I'm just yeah. checking Netflix right now. No, there's no, no. Amazon Prime, maybe. No, no nothing no, on Amazon. Nothing streaming on Apple. Apple, maybe. No. Yeah, I mean, who, who, honestly, who could tell? Um, <laughs> I did sign up this week to a six month uh, trial through Sky. You should uh, with Apple, so I finally have Apple TV. You can watch. Ooh, C. You can watch Foundation and Foundation. But mainly see. I will be watching neither of those shows. But uh, <laughs> but thank you for your recommendations. Nonetheless. I will be I'll be watching Mystic Pizza, whatever it's called. Yes, Mystic with, um, Pizza. That's why you subscribe. Yeah, the one with the one with the guy who bought Wrexham who isn't Ryan Reynolds. That 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 one. The the bloke from It's Always Sunny. Yes. Rob McElhenney. I know his name, but I can't remember. Oh, the name Oh, Mythic for sure. Quest. Oh, it's really Mythic, good. Mythic Quest. Thank you. Yeah, it's thank really you. fun. Yes, it also has the, I think the best lockdown episode of any show. It does. It's very good. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, it's a low bar, but okay. Um, all right. Yeah, I think we're done. That's uh, it for the on podcast. that note, that is it for this week's Empire <laughs> Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun. Oh, wait. W- what? Didn't we just have an interview with James Cameron, and wasn't he talking about something he'd made? Oh, does he have a film out? Well. No. He oh. can't have a film out. The, pro- the ever-prolific James Cameron cannot suddenly have just produced a film after 13 years of not making a film. That's now how it works, James. Oh, Sorry. no, wait. He has. Avatar The Way of Water is out this week. It is the biggest film of the week. Um, and the only film of the week, pretty much. And this is interesting because I haven't seen a I haven't seen a film given this wide a berth for a long time. Not even one of the big Marvel ones. Yeah. Not even, not even Black Adam. You know, no one was running this scared from a film that if you go on Twitter and you you know you you just spend five minutes on Twitter, people will tell you no one cares about this film. No one wants to see this film. This film is stupid. Avatar sucked. Didn't have a cultural footprint, blah blah blah, yada yada yada, and yet, and yet, here we are. The only film in town is Avatar: The Way of Water, and the only film a week either side as well, because you know you don't mess with James Cameron. You don't. You do not mess with, with the special investigators. Yeah, you really don't. <laughs> All right, we should talk about the film. I guess. We should talk about the film. We should talk about the film. Avatar: The Way of Water. Jimbo, set this one up. Well, 
It's set 15 years after the end of Avatar, which is, lest we forget, the biggest movie of all time. And things have quietened down. The RDA, the humans, have fucked off back to Earth. Jake has become a Navi, and he's raising a family with Neytiri. He's got a clutch of little kids. They go out hunting. They chill out. They have fun times in the forest. It's like an idyllic little Disney movie, except it's not, because one night they look up, and there's a light in the sky, and the humans are back, back, back. Sky people. The sky people have returned. They've come to install the dish. Indeed. So Jake Sully, I see you, uh, and his wife Natiri take their kids, their kids, which is uh, which are. Let me see if I can get this right. There's there's Nateum, Loak, Tuk, Tuk, which is who's the little one, and their adopted daughter Kiri, who looks a lot like Sigourney Weaver. It's weird. It's complicated. You'll understand when you go and see it. They start a guerrilla war, trying to sort of fend off the humans as they return. That quickly goes badly. So they abandon the Amatakaya clan, which uh, Jake Sully has become leader of, and they flee Sully. to. The ocean people, the Metkaina, who live on the reefs of Pandora and basically ride fish. And and thus the film continues. I mean, yes, there are extended sequences of people learning to ride fish. Yes, there is a lot of swimming around in the water. Uh, and there's a lot of scene setting and there's a lot of sense of place. But I would say that what this succeeds in more than anything else is just taking you to Pandora in a way that I didn't think was possible. In that, so for the first film, like I've always said that that Avatar. You know, one of its main strengths is it's entirely transportational. It's this incredible thing that takes you to a place you can only imagine. And this does it again with all the wonder that the first one had. Like, none of it is gone because you are seeing it in a different way, you know, from under the sea. Under the sea. Under the sea. Darling, it's better. Down where it's wetter. Under the sea. Uh, and it is literally wetter in this case because they're the ones who did the effects. But, hey. uh, yeah, thank you very much. But, uh, it, you know, and I don't want to start casting, you know, throwing shade in Marvel's direction, but you look at this and then you look at the undersea sequences in Black Panther Wakanda Forever and it is, shall we say, a substantial departure. It is the cinematic experience, I would say, of the year, this film, and yet I was 100% certain that it would have one-star reviews as well as five-star reviews because, as with all of James Cameron's four-quadrant output, it's divisive. So, Did you mention Quaritch? I have not mentioned Quaritch, who is back in Avatar form. And actually, I would argue, and I, I, I railed against this because I thought it showed a lack of invention. Look, I love Stephen Lang as much as the next person. Like, he was there, he was a bell, and he died. That's fine. We didn't need to have him back. I completely recant all that. I actually think he is one of, if not the most interesting character in this film. I love his arc in this film. I think he's fantastic. I think it was an incredibly shrewd decision to keep him as the antagonist in this film. I'm not going to say any more thing about it because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. But uh, yes, Quaritch is back, and he's blue. Well, what's interesting about that, before we bring Helen in, is that it, it turns the film into something that's very, very different from the first Avatar, which is it streamlines a plot to an extraordinarily simple degree, which is that it's a revenge movie. So Quaritch comes back, he's blue, he's big, he's bad, he's mean, he's pissed off. He wants, he wants to wreak havoc on Jake Sully and Natiri and, uh, and their family. And it's a chase movie from that point on. And it's very, very simple. And we don't spend ages gadding around Pandora with the flora and the fauna and there's no David Attenborough voiceover. Well, and that, we and spend that, a I, pretty large amount of time gadding yeah, around Pandora learning to ride really fish do. and swimming in the sea. <laughs> At least an hour and a half. <laughs> but those bits, those bits in fairness are very, very lovely. They're they very, yeah. very lovely. Yes. But there's also a propulsive backbone. Mm. Can you have a propulsive backbone? I guess you can <laughs> if you're wearing a, a mech suit. Uh, a propulsive backbone to the movie. And some of the invention on display here, you know, is is extraordinary. I think the movie has certain 
storytelling flaws, but visually, especially towards the end, it takes a little while, I think, to readapt to Pandora being thrust into what is essentially an animated movie with some incredible live-action interfaces at times. But once you, once you get back into the groove, like Stella, how you get your groove back, <laughs> once you do that, it's just, it's mind-boggling. Every frame of this movie pretty much has something that is mind-boggling. The technical complexity is extraordinary. Cameron said recently that, you know, if he were to step aside from directing Avatars 4 or 5, uh, should they happen, which it looks like they probably will, then, and, he were, and were he to step aside, there isn't another director on the planet who could do this. He would have to spend a year or two years training up a director to do this. I mean, and it's just, it's mind-boggling. And I'd like to see it, I've only seen it once, I'd like to see it again, Helen, I don't know what you think, because, you know, I was, I was so caught up sometimes in the how the fuck did they do that of it all that I maybe missed the emotional impact that the film wanted you to have. I, th- I think the emotion is there, and I, th- I think you're right about the, the, the plot being very, very simple. I think that allows you to introduce all these new characters because the focus really does pass to the kids in yeah. this movie, and they are astonishingly non-irritating because I think it would be very, very... We've all seen that sequel with the kids and we're just like, oh, genuinely go to... I don't care. Go to bed. I'm here for your parents. Go away, you know? Yeah. Um, and 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 they are they are good characters. They are well drawn characters, and the family dynamic is interesting. My my big note about the family, in fact, is that the person who loses out in all this is Natiri, who goes from being a, a key lead in the film to barely being an afterthought. She has some very very good action scenes, like jaw dropping, holy shit action scenes. But when when there are in depth parenting scenes to be done, when there are heart to heart chats, it's always Jake always Jake. And I thought that was very unusual, especially for a James Cameron film mm. where he is so about great female leads. So I was disappointed in that. I genuinely thought that that felt like something was out of balance and out of whack. And I would have liked to have seen more for Jake and Neytiri and more for Neytiri with her kids. Um, and more for Neytiri herself, because they go to this new world, essentially. They leave the forest, they go to the reef people. And she also is a fish out of water. She also presumably, has some new stuff to learn. And we see every other member of the family getting to grips with the skills they need in this new place. And none of that with Neytiri. Now, maybe she just took to it like a duck to water, but we don't see that either. And so stuff like that, mm. I thought, was was a bit of a shame. However, leaving that aside, um, the actions off the scale, the, the, the world building is incredible. And look, I know I'm a broken record on this, but this is what happens if you give your VFX people the time and the money because the talent is there, the technology is there. What James Cameron has that nobody else has is the time and the money. And this is the result of that. It's unbelievable. But it's not just that. It's also what happens when you have a director who absolutely understands the, the process of effects and, and how things work. And, and not every director does that. No, that's also about time and money. I mean, look, we've talked about it in the past, but like Scorsese and Spielberg picked up the 3D camera after Avatar and were able to do something with it. They knew what to do. Alfonso Cuaron spent years embedded with his VFX people to make gravity. And then he took everything he learned in that into his following films and made them better than they would have been otherwise. Good directors learn how to do this. And yes, it might take a year for James Cameron to explain the depth of what he's done here, but it's not impossible. It's having the time and the money to do that. And nobody else does. I think Cameron's a a slightly different 
type of director to a lot of directors in that he's so i mean this comes out in cameron special a lot he's so embedded in every aspect of film production that's also like true, and yeah. i think we we as a brand and as a magazine sometimes we we do subscribe slightly to the cult of the director where we may maybe ascribe more should we say creative drive control and talent to the director who really is overseeing a very talented team i think in cameron's case like he does drive these movies in every single area from design to i mean literally everything he's in, he's got a finger in every pie there's no point where he's you know off having lunch and second unit is just doing it all in his absence you know he is a hundred percent across this and has been with all of his films because he's a massive control freak um, yeah, but it, but it shows like this film is exactly what he wanted it to be the the action scene the last hour of the movie is basically an action sequence and it's like nothing you've ever seen in your life like it's it's absolutely incredible and the technology he uses here like we've we've talked about 3d a lot and how you know it got to the point where when someone handed you a pair of 3d glass you were like oh, for fuck's sake uh and i felt like that i hate 3d and yet when i saw this in 3d i was like oh my god 3d is amazing but it's amazing when it's used for filmmaking purposes not for like money driving yeah. purposes and you know ultra high frame rate which again i have lamented against i mean gemini man was an abomination as was uh as was an unexpected journey when it was shot on her but this because it's not entirely in high frame rate because he chooses when and where to deploy it as a tool and then calms it down when it's not useful it actually doesn't feel alienating and the grammar of cinema is still in place and i didn't think it took away from it at all you feel it kick in sometimes but it's a very small bump in adjustment and it makes those action sequences pop in a way that i don't think any other action sequences i've ever seen have so it, it is something that you should see 100% in the best cinema you can. Like, see it on the biggest screen you can, see it in 3D, see it in, in high frame rate. And not all IMAX is, not all 3 will have it in high frame rate, so it does bear doing a little bit, a little bit of a look around. If you are in central London, if you're lucky enough to be able to afford the high prices in central London, the Odeon Lux West End is the best place to see it, which is not the big Odeon West End. It's actually the one on the, I want to say, south side of the square, which is the sort of subterranean one under the hotel, because that's the one that Cameron and Landau chose to show it at that's the one that they went in and tweaked the screen for and it had it's all to do with the amount of light the projectors have because of the 3d it's, it's all very complicated and i don't fully understand it needless to say camera says that's the one to see it at maybe go and see it there and you know there's a lot of great stuff about about it as well there's a, there's a character a new addition to the the cast can't remember his first name but he's called scoresby he's an australian <laughs> sleazebag who is wonderfully mick, mick scoresby and mick scoresby that's his name and uh, his right-hand man is Jermaine Clement. <laughs> yes, Jermaine Clement yeah. from Flight of the Concords. And despite the fact that he's hanging around with an Australian, he's not doing his own New Zealand accent. He's doing an American accent. And that is the thing that took me out of the movie more than anything. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Uh, because it's a, it's a fine American accent. He, you know, talk about the uncanny valley. It's like, hang on, I know what Jermaine Clement sounds like, and it is not that. And what's happening? Jermaine present? Not sure. Not sure. <laughs> There's a lot of other great things in the movie as well. There's a really interesting scene to Jeopardy. And I thought, you know, because it's been a while since Avatar. But I think you actually plug back into the characters fairly quickly. There are moments of suspense and Jeopardy for all the characters throughout. And uh, I, I think Cameron orchestrates those really, really nicely. You know, this is the first of three more Avatars to come. And I think some characters are underserved. As Helen said, Natiri doesn't really get that much to do apart from kick ass every now and again uh kate winslet as the underwater lady ronald um the, okay uh yeah <laughs> uh you know i don't if you had you know if i didn't know that it was kate winslet i wouldn't have known it was kate winslet and i don't think she gets a lot to do but you know 
there are three more of these things to come at least. I would also say that, um, you know, if you remember the destruction of Home Tree last time and the kind of the emotional impact of that and the kind of the level of sort of environmental upset that I, yeah. I mean, I certainly felt, I'm sure, sure most people did. That happens several times during this film and, and it starts really, really early as yeah. soon as the humans arrive back on Pandora, as the humans arrive back on Pandora. So, you know, it, it, it genuinely might radicalize people because it is deeply, deeply upsetting and will make you question your life here on earth. In a in a good way. In a, in a good way. Yeah. Like it feels yeah. it yeah. feels positive. I think I think weirdly, like I, I I love this film for its spectacle. I love it for its heart. I know that Cameron's most recent films. I mean, it's saying his most recent films is kind of a ridiculous thing to say, but uh, his you know Titanic, Avatar. I know the emotional core of that polarizes a lot of the dude bros on the internet and whatnot, and that it seems to be cool to rag on these films, but they are fantastic. I think if I were to criticize this film. My main thing would be it 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 feels familiar in that it hits it hits very similar tonal notes and in some cases set piece notes that the first film does. So it, it it's you know it would be very reductive to call this the Force Awakens to its Star Wars in the sense that it's what you want. It is a sequel. It moves things on, but it also feels very home tree ish. It feels very familiar. It feels like you've maybe been here a little bit before. And given it's been so long since the last film, that may not be the worst thing in the world. It didn't in any way take me out of the film, you know, and it didn't it didn't sort of like reduce the experience for me. And I think partly because there are more films to come, it is is the first step on a journey. It's not a, a complete journey in and of itself. But yes, it, th there is some familiarity to it. True, but it's also batshit insane. I, I think we have, <laughs> we, have, we have perhaps buried the lead by saying that there is, uh, you know, I don't want to get too much into it, but, you know, this is Pandora and the characters have connections with the, the, the wildlife and they yep. have connections with the plant life. And there is a supporting character in this movie that is, that's not to put too fine upon on it, a, a whale. Uh, and and you will you will love that whale, and uh, you you will feel for that whale, and you will have your mind blown when the whale somehow has a dialogue scene, and it's that kind of going for broke. I mean, there's just there was a moment where I was like, Cameron's lost his fucking mind. What? What's going on here? But once you plug into the rhythms of that, I think it actually really works. There, yeah, it's I it's a very singular film. I thought I thought I'd missed something with that scene you're talking about with the whale. I genuinely thought, did I miss a thing here? Like a whisk speaking yeah. whale? Like what's happening? Yeah. I speak whale. <laughs> yes, that's literally what uh, happens. No, I, I kind of weirdly I didn't bump up against that at all. I was like, yep. I mean, the the whale. He's having a chat with the whale. That that makes sense. That that's cool. Um, I I do think. I mean, it is. Really, really, more than even Avatar, more than Titanic, very much playing into James Cameron's particular obsessions. You know, obviously, like his his incredible fascination with technology and his his ability to push it forward, his uh, his diving, his interest in the sea, his interest in, in conservation, everything else. It's it's all there. It could not be more James Cameron. This is maximum James Cameron. This film, you know. And just, I mean, I have to say, you know, you were, you were right, Jim, but you could hear you could hear people getting their knives ready for this movie. And you know, I I know people who who just will refuse to see this film, just refuse to see this film. They've made their mind up about it. It's terrible. Any good review is instantly dismissed. But the one star reviews I've been seeing, I mean, come on, it's deranged. Come on, yeah. Just from a filmmaking point of view alone, this is incredible. Cameron's been away for a while. It's like George Miller coming back with Fury Road. Like, all right. I'm going to show you youngins how it's done. And it's a bit like that with Cameron. He's come back and he's shown us all how it's done. 
and there are various bits of the movie that you know I don't you know I think you might struggle to connect with. Certainly, I did. Again, need to see it a second time to really see if I can plug into the emotions of the movie. It does get a little bit tree huggy for my liking, but that's okay. But the action, the technological complexity, Jesus Christ. I'm actually quite glad now that it's only a couple of years until the next one. Is it a year to the next one or a couple of years? Two. Yeah, two years. Two, yeah. Yeah. two years until the next one. I'm ready to go back to Pandora again. Amen. There we go. We gave us one five stars, which is the opposite of a one-star review. Uh, so <laughs> check it out at a local cinema near you. And the 3D glasses, it was so weird. I, I railed against 3D after the first Avatar because most directors don't really understand how to use it. But mm-hmm. also the glasses are really uncomfortable. And I have to say I found that again. This is, a, this is a three hour, 15 minute long film and the glasses kept slipping down my nose and I, I had to keep pushing them up. And a couple of times I did take my glasses off just to see what it looked like. Blurry. I gave myself a headache. <laughs> <laughs> Five stars then for Avatar <laughs> The Way of Water. Uh, and on that, oh wait, no, not on that note. We have one more guest. We have one more guest because we have bumper sized jam packed jamborees, don't we, these days. And that guest is Sean Anders, who is the director of Spirited, the musical update slash remake slash reimagining of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which is playing right now on Apple TV+. Plus. So I have a subscription. I can watch it again. Hooray! Hooray! Everybody's happy. Everybody wins. Of course, Will Ferrell, Ryan Reynolds, goes to Christmas present. Is Will Ferrell. Ryan Reynolds is his mark, the man that he is trying to uh, reform on Christmas Day and uh, on Christmas Day, on Christmas Eve. And it's all happening. And uh, Sean Anders came into London a couple of weeks ago. I spoke to him on Zoom, naturally, and uh, we had a good old chat about reimagining Dickens and about the movie he made before this, which was Instant Family, which is a film I really, really love and, you know, has been quite important to me and my wife as we uh, headed out on our adoption journey. So I may get a little bit serious and sentimental here, uh, folks, but hopefully you will indulge me that towards the end of this interview. So here we go. Sean Anders, do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the director and co-writer of Spirited, Mr. Sean Anders. How are you, sir? Good. Good. Thank you. Uh, where are you at the moment? I am in a hotel in London. It looks very old-timey. It looks very gothic. You've got lots of uh, pictures. Are you in the National Gallery by any chance? Have you just <laughs> <laughs> No, I just assumed it was a law here that everything <laughs> had to have, like, classical paintings on the walls everywhere. <laughs> it's lovely, though. It is lovely. It's very, very nice indeed. Uh, are you jet-lagged or are you okay? I am jet-lagged. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> I am very jet-lagged. <laughs> I got in yesterday and I've spent an entire day. Tra- in fact, I actually went to see a show last night and I didn't make it all the way through. I was falling asleep because I was so jet-lagged, so I had to leave so that I wouldn't be that that guy who's snoring in the gallery <laughs> oh my god oh my god are you at liberty to uh, say what the show was it was it was cabaret and it was so good but i was just completely jet lagged and i couldn't keep my eyes open and i really wanted to see the rest uh but i only made it about halfway <laughs> go back tonight but go halfway through and just yeah. <laughs> and then be that guy who turns up halfway through really loudly well, the worst part is I didn't want to make noise, so <laughs> I felt compelled to explain to the people like, no, no, I'm not leaving because I don't like it. I'm leaving because I'm, I can't stay awake. But I, it's not that I can't stay awake because it's not good. It was just, you know, so I just looked like that jerk who didn't like the show or maybe I was too much of a prude for it or something. I don't know. But anyway. That was my that was my night last night. Well, there you go, there you go. But it's interesting on your your first night in London, and you go to see uh, a musical. Uh, I thought you, you're not <laughs> sick of musicals. You're <laughs> you're okay still with musicals. 
I'm not. No, I just we just wanted to see something good, and we heard it was fantastic. So yeah, excellent. Are you a musicals guy, then, Sean? This it seems like a strange question to ask of someone who's just directed a musical. But uh, is this something? Is Spirited something that you've been wanting to do for a long, long time? Is it an itch you've wanted to scratch for for years? It is, but I'm not somebody who grew up in that world. I hated musicals when I was a kid and when I was younger, and and I, none of my friends liked musicals. And then I sort of found them a bit later in life, um, and uh, and became more interested in them. And then my writing partner John and I, we had wanted to do a musical for years. And when this idea came up, this was finally the one where we thought, oh, maybe that could be a musical. When did that come up? When did this idea come up? My my theory is you were visited by the ghost of musicals past. I showed you the way. <laughs> that's that's much better than the story I'm about to tell. <laughs> no, we were just working. We were working. I don't even remember on what script, but we were working on a script one day, and we were just having a story discussion. And somehow we got on the topic of a Christmas Carol and started discussing how the ghosts are arguably the protagonists of A Christmas Carol because they're the ones with a mission. They're the ones who have something to accomplish in the course of the story, whereas Scrooge kind of gets dragged around and, and you know, get, he's the, the character who changes. Um, so that just led to a discussion about, man, the work that must go into that, the prep that the ghosts must have to go through to, to recreate all that and decide what they're going to show him and how they're going to present it. And it just, it just became a very funny idea to us. Yeah, and you ask the, the big questions. I mean, uh, Ryan's character in the movie asks the big questions when things start happening to him. You know, basically, it wasn't just the one dude. And that's you know it, it wasn't just Scrooge. There's a there's an industry. There's a there's a whole ghosty yeah. Christmas ghost industry. So once you start pulling at the threads, I mean, frankly, Sean, you know, we're I'm, we're we're in England here, and we don't want to talk smack about Charles Dickens, but he hadn't thought this through, had he? He he hadn't he hadn't thought it through. <laughs> I don't know. He got the important things. He definitely got the important things right because we're still telling this story and we're still talking about this story two hundred years later. So, um, I, I technically yes, I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, yeah, I I hear what you're saying though. We talked about that a lot about how much meat he left on that bone, particularly when you really start breaking it down and getting into the work that must go into a haunt like that. Yeah. Yeah. And also, he was he was writing this at a time when there wasn't the internet, and he, yeah. didn't, he, he presumably didn't have people coming up to him going, "Okay, how does how exactly does this work? Uh, your logic is flawed here, and this is just one guy. <laughs> this is all this effort just to turn one guy." Yeah, he didn't he didn't have to have people posting videos about what he really meant. <laughs> <laughs> Charles Dickens cinema sins. Uh, yeah, I, I can I can see it now, uh, but. Can you talk me through, Len, how that idea goes from, oh, that's a funny idea, to <laughs> this is a huge multi-million dollar blockbuster musical starring two of the funniest people on the planet? Well, let's see. So the, I guess the next part of the conversation, and this is what really sold us on, the, on our own idea, <laughs> was <laughs> that when we, when we started discussing who the Scrooge should be, and we came up with the thought of, well, wouldn't it be more fun if it was somebody who is pushing back, um, making things difficult? And especially in the world we live in today, where everybody is so focused and intent on being right about whatever their argument is. 
we thought, well, and that, and that's actually where the, the name spirited came from was a spirited argument. And, and so we started, when we started talking about that, about the, the Scrooge being almost like a TV news pundit, somebody who's going to push back no matter how wrong they might be, mm. that got us really excited. The first person we called was Will Ferrell to pitch him the idea. And he was game really from that very first call. And even when I told him it was a musical, which he was a bit shocked and surprised by, but it didn't make him quit the project right then and there. <laughs> he thought, oh, that's interesting. And this was very early days. We still had a script to write and a lot of work to do before it right. became a reality. And then as we were a little bit farther into it, we were trying to find our Clint Briggs. And we never wanted him to be this curmudgeon or this mean nasty guy we wanted him to be cool and slick and and charismatic and and funny and so ryan reynolds came to mind pretty early on and we didn't know if he could sing but we found out that he had done he had done at least one episode or maybe a few episodes of the masked singer in south korea to promote i think it was to promote one of the deadpool movies yeah deadpool too yeah yeah. So when we found that out, we went to pitch to Ryan was actually off doing a movie. So we pitched to George, who is his producing partner. And uh, George told us after we were done with the pitch, he said, wow, Ryan really has wanted to do three things, a Christmas movie, a Will Ferrell movie and a musical. So you just came in and brought us all three in one shot. So <laughs> We didn't know that, of course, going in, but lucky break for us. That's amazing. So so Ferrell was never... He was never going to be the, the Clint Briggs character for you. No, no. We thought of Will as the Ghost of Christmas present from the jump. Okay. And, uh, you know, obviously you've got history with, with Will. So yeah. do you think of him automatically for, for most things? Well, Will is just so much fun to work with. And he's just such a wonderful human being that, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the short answer is yes. I do, I do think of him because just from a quality of life perspective on top of how funny he is and on, on top of how talented he is, it's just, I know it's going to be a good experience when Will's around. And uh, you, you knew as well with Will that he could sing. So he's, he's sung and stuff before, obviously, you know, it's a fucking Catalina wine mixer and Step Brothers. He, he has a go at <laughs> opera, you know, but he's, he's not, he's not someone who's shy of, of displaying his pipes, so to speak. Uh, but, were you still slightly nervous about the fact that you have two basically non-professional singers at the heart of your movie and Octavia as well, of course? Yeah, definitely slightly, but we knew that from the beginning, this isn't going to be about, uh, you know, perfect Broadway vocal performance. It's going to be more about the characters, more about the comedy, more about the expression. So Will, you know, in, in, in the case of this film, as opposed to Step Brothers or, or Eurovision, uh, <clears throat> none of this, well, no, no, I shouldn't say none of it. Some of the singing that he had to do was not tongue in cheek. It was more, he really had to put himself out there emotionally a bit, a bit more than he had in the past, which is, which is risky for a comic actor because people tend to kind of push people to stay in their lanes and, you know, that kind of thing. So I thought Will really was, um, brave to put himself out there and sing in a more earnest way when the story called for it. I wonder if we've 
skipped slightly the part where it became a musical <laughs> for, for you and John. <laughs> we might have. <laughs> I, I mean, it was kind of a musical from that very first conversation that John and I had. We thought, could this be a musical? And then when we, so we thought of it as a musical from the beginning. So when we wrote the first draft of the script, we would, we talked a lot about where the songs should should land. Um, and we would write these kind of sample lyrics of songs just so that whoever's reading the script would, even though we weren't going to write the songs, whoever was reading the script would have an idea of what's going to be said during this part. What are these songs going to be about? And, you know, none of those lyrics ended up in the, in the film, but okay. uh, yeah. So from the very first draft, I can say that it was written as a musical from the first draft. And also we hadn't talked to Octavia yet, but it had always said in the first draft of the script, Kimberly, Octavia Spencer. <laughs> so um, many things that we uh, that we intended from the jump um, came true. Weirdly enough, there's not that many because I've I've been I've been doing my research uh, for once, Sean, uh, and there actually aren't that many Christmas Carol adaptations on the big screen not really there's obviously the alistair sim one there's there's the daddy of them all the muppet christmas carol <laughs> but you know i think even i think even the george c scott one was a tv movie i don't think it was ever released theatrically so there's only yeah, i think you're right it's only really about i'd say seven or eight bona fide christmas carol movies so maybe you didn't actually have that much of a a weight on your shoulder or, or, or that much of a of a past to contend with well, for ours, we knew from the very beginning we were going to do something very, very different with it. Mm. And when this idea came up and we really started talking about the work that the ghosts put in and making the Ghost of Christmas Present the protagonist of the story, we knew we were in different territory than any of the others. So ours is not just a contemporary retelling of A Christmas Carol. No. So that was what we were the most excited about was to to take that structure and almost use it like a road movie where you know a road movie something like planes trains and automobiles the characters you know are trying to get home for a holiday um in our case our road is clintberg's life but it's really about these two guys on this journey together and so when when did uh, Pasek and Paul come on? Pretty early on, uh, it, it was really interesting because we were in full COVID lockdown when we were getting into the songwriting and the rewriting of the pages and that kind of thing. And Pasek and Paul were our first choice. And you generally don't get your first choice on a lot of things because of schedules and just because of what people's interests are and that kind of thing. But we went to them. We had one meeting. They said, sure. And, and we kind of got right into it with them. And, um, and yeah, so we had, fortunately we had the benefit of the lockdown to spend a little time going back and forth on the, on the songs and such. Cause they're, they're busy guys. I mean, they, they did Lyle Crocodile as well this year. They've got, they've got, they've got stuff going on. They've got stuff going on that they do. Yeah. So, you know, did you, did you stay on top of them going, you know, give me your best stuff, give your second best stuff to Lyle Lyle Crocodile. That's exactly what we said. Yeah, <laughs> give them all the the factory rejects and give us the polished, clean, shiny songs. <laughs> I've got to let you go in a second, uh, Sean, but I, I can't let you go without asking about uh, a film I've talked about a few a few times in the podcast. Uh, regular listeners to our podcast will know that recently my wife and I had adopted a little girl, um, and Instant Family is a big film for for us and i just want to ask you about that i mean is that is that a film since then 
that you've had a lot of people like me coming up to you and talking about Instant Family? Yes, yes. And I never get tired of it. And I never get tired of hearing people's stories. And that honestly was a movie I never thought I would get a chance to make on the grand scale that we made it. I thought if I did a if I did a movie about that, it would have to be some little independent labor of love. And then Mark Wahlberg walked in and said he would do it. And then that turned it into a big studio film and had much more reach all over the world. And it really has affected the numbers uh, for adoption and foster care all over the world. And that's, that's definitely going to be the, (laughs) the proudest achievement for me in my career and whenever I hear that people who have lived it uh, in, enjoyed the movie and hopefully, you know, learned a few things from it um, and have maybe spread the word to other people uh, that that might get involved in it as well, that's that's incredibly wonderful and important to me. Obviously, it's not a documentary, but it, you no. know, it, 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 what, what I really like about Instant Family, I like a lot of things, but I like the fact that it doesn't sugarcoat. You know, you, you must have had... I, I'm imagining pressure to kind of sugarcoat it. You know, once it turns into a big commercial Mark Wahlberg comedy, you know, to kind of go, yeah, everything's going to be rosy, kids. Everything's going to be fine. You adopt. There are going to be no bad days. But the film doesn't 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 say that. You know, we really didn't get pressure in the making of the movie to to do that. Oddly, we got pressure from some people after the movie was out, where some people, you know, just you know, I mean, the the sort of Twitter, TikTok world we live in today, that there were some comments that were made of how could these heartless people have a conversation like that? And I just think, oh God, you do not know what you're talking about. It's just, it, it's such a bizarre experience to, um, to be in a family with people who you don't know and they don't know you yet. Yeah. And you're, you're already considered a family the minute that that you're all together in a home, but you're still getting to know each other and you're still trying to figure it out one another's quirks. And I think that's difficult enough when you're, when you're talking about biological family, where your kids start out as, as infants and grow into the family. Um, but in an adoption situation, it's just a very, very tricky, uh, it's, it's very tricky to navigate that. So yeah, you people, not every, every moment you have is your proudest moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I should point out that we haven't gone to the school yet and punched the school, <laughs> the school caretaker. We haven't done that well, yet. Well, that's just so you know, that's coming. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's I've got a pencil in for four o'clock today. I'm just going to go down and, and lamp someone. Uh, but yes, we're I all t- we're all looking forward to that episode. <laughs> And it will be an episode, that is for sure. Uh, but yes, I just wanted to say thank you for that movie. And um, it, you know, it, it really has meant a lot to me and my wife as, a, as well. No, I'm so glad you told me that. Thank you so much for letting me know. Amazing. And uh, on that note, uh, I'm glad to go. Sean Anders, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so that was Sean Anders. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast, another bumper-sized pre-Christmas edition. And uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. And we'll be doing it all again because we'll be joined by... Oh, my word. Who aren't we going to be joined by next week? We're going to be joined by Christian Bale. Ooh. Christian Bale, uh, star of the new Scott Cooper movie, re-teaming with Scott Cooper once again, The Pale Blue Eye, which will be on Netflix over the holiday period. Uh, that is a period detective drama. So Christian Bale, very, very exciting indeed. We'll also be joined by... Hugh Jackman. It's a Ooh. prestige reunion. That's right. Hugh Jackman 
who was nominated this week for a Golden Globe for his performance in The Sun. And uh, he is going to be on next week's Empire podcast. And also, because next week is the week of the, the Netflix release of Glass Onion, uh, we'll be joined by Kate Hudson and Jessica Hennick. So that's a very, very fun interview, folks. They weren't in The Prestige, as far as I can tell. But hey-ho, that's their loss. Maybe they were. Maybe they were. just didn't see them. Yeah, maybe I was looking somewhere else. Look mm. closer. The Prestige. Mm. Right. Prestige. Just hands. Anyway, uh, <laughs> until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Uh, we didn't do Squadcast names today because I don't know how to do it on Squadcast these days. They've changed the interface and it's all a bit rubbish. Uh, so, James Dyer, goodbye. Goodbye. What would it have been? What would my name have been? Oh, something something in Narve. Turk Makto or something, you know, in, in the original Narve. Do no such thing to your toe. Uh, <laughs> Goodbye, James Dyer. It's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Goodbye, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. I was going for Luke, who's Tol- Tolkien. Tolkien, which is Tolkien, the name of the space the whales. Of the, the, the space whales, yeah. Yeah. Space whales. It's very good. Hello, uh, okay. the whales. And it's goodbye from me, Tolkien White Guy. And ah. uh, I am off to buy myself another copy of Evil Dead 2. When what you don't have enough. It's Christmas. Gotta treat yourself. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. 